BBC Three Counties Radio. First for news. Oh, we, we're talking driving tests a little bit later on, Catherine. Yeah. And I am firmly and genuinely of the belief that if it's taking... Five is the maximum you should be able to take. Any more than five driving tests... I don't want you on the roads. I think you're probably right. How many tests did it take you? Two. Oh, you're good. She's good, huh? Seriously, any more than five driving tests, you're not... There are too many cars and too many drivers anyway. OK, the roads are far too congested. So, any more than five driving tests, <coughs> you're not allowed on my roads. Oh, eight four five nine four double five. Five double five is the phone number. Lots coming up on the show, including a BBC investigation has revealed concerns over how the Liverpool Care Pathway is being used in three counties' hospitals. I'll tell you why next. Find out why our reporter, Tony Fisher, met the celebrities who are braving crocodiles, hippos and huge rapids by tackling more than 60 miles of the Zambezi River. And that driving test story... Thousands of motorists in the three counties did 11 tests each. I seriously think, if you do more than five, you should not be allowed to drive. It's obvious you're not good enough. Facebook.com forward slash BBC 3CR. You can send me a text, 81333, starting your text 3CR. Or you can give us a call, 08459 455 555. BBC Three Counties Radio. Now, a few months ago, most of us would probably admit that we'd never heard uh, about something called the Liverpool Care Pathway. And maybe you have heard about it, but you're still not quite sure what it is. Well, the newspapers have been full of complaints, worries that hospital patients were being put on it too soon or unnecessarily, and families were not being told. The pathway has been developed to help doctors and nurses provide quality end-of-life care. Well, BBC East have been investigating how uh, this is being used in hospitals across the region. Producer Julian Sturdy is on the line. Morning, Julian. Good morning. For those who are unsure, what, what is the Liverpool Care Pathway? Well, it depends on your point of view, but it was set up about ten years ago, came out of the hospice movement, um, and, as you say, it was designed to help dying people. Now, it's complicated, and in some cases it can um, include the removal of fluids and fu- food and an increasing dosage of dimorphine. So for patients who are dying, it is, it is used to ease their way, to ease their suffering in a compassionate way. All that was fine. I mean, it's been used in some of our hospitals in, in three counties, in Bedford, for instance, have been using it since 2004, and there have been very few complaints until now. As you say, in recent months, more and more people have been coming forward just saying, hang on a minute, we didn't know grandma's father was dying in hospital, we weren't told. Occasionally, some of these people have been told about something called LCP, and they thought it was a drug. You know, oh, your dad's on LCP. Oh, OK, that must be a drug to help him. Um, and the government has now ordered, or just before Christmas, ordered an, in, an independent national review to find out what's going on, particularly uh, whether some hospitals were being encouraged to do to use it. But the financial bonuses are being offered to hospitals, is that right? Yes. Um, every year, um, a small proportion of a... Of a, of a trust budget about one one or two percent say um is incentivized put on a target to say look we want you to do this or that and if you do it we'll give you a bit of money at the end so, so it's 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 a well-known initiative um, known as a, a sequin payment now what had been happening is is quite a number of, of trusts across the region um have, have been using this um as a way of their, their target was to get three quarters of patients they think are dying onto um, the liverpool care pathway now 
a good idea in cases of, of cancer, terminal care. Um, but here, some of these hospitals are, you know, in financial trouble, or at least very tight. Money's very tight. Some of these beds have been blocked. Sometimes 20% of beds are blocked by people that don't need to be there. So there's this kind of conflict between the clinical need and the fear that it would at one point end up as a financial need. Let, let me tell you how it's been used in, in um, this part of the world. And, and again, it's been used uncontroversial up until now. We used freedom of information to, to ask these hospitals. Some of them were very reluctant to give us the information. Some of them were freely, freely able to give it to us. For instance, at the Luton and Dunstable Hospital, 678 people have been put on the Liverpool Care Pathway in the last three years. Of course, most of the vast majority of those will have gone on to die. One or two people sometimes come off it. Um, over in, in Milton Keynes, they, like some hospitals, they haven't been collecting the figures, but they were able to tell us that in, in the 11 months of last year, half the inpatients, half the ward patients um, outside A&E um, died while on the Liverpool Care Pathway. The number's quite low, 276 out of 571. And then over in Bedford, where um, they weren't able to collect the figures, um, but both Bedford and East and North Hearts, so that's the, the, the hospitals like um, QE Wellin and the Lister at Stevenage, both of those were offered these sequin payments. In the case of, of Hearts, um, they received just under £200,000 as a bonus for reaching targets about the best care of, of Liverpool Care Pathway. And in Bedford, slightly different there, it wasn't a specific put more people on the pathway and we'll give you more money but they did um, receive payments for £165,000 to fund um, LCP and palliative care nurses directly from the PCT. And you said that patients and relatives aren't always aware it's being used? Well, best practice is that um, patients and, if, if possible, obviously in some cases patients aren't well enough to be told, but if they're not told, this decision to put them onto the Liverpool Care Pathway, which is essentially saying there's no more treatment available, essentially we, you really are in the last few days of your life, that should also be shared with relatives. Now, um, we'd ask, we asked for figures. Um, these hospitals, uh, these particular hospitals, weren't able to tell us, but the number of people that complained subsequently um, is very low. But it's clear that uh, across the region there have been a number of families that have just not been aware, A, that Grandad was dying, and B, mm. that uh, they're having this particular treatment that might potentially hasten his death, or at least ease him out of this world quicker. Uh, some of the relatives are going to be speaking at the House of Lords tomorrow. What, what are they going to be saying? Well, there's been a growing kind of consensus that something needs to change. But again, before Christmas, there were roundtable talks. Um, Norman Lamb, the care minister, uh, was was sanctioning those, and that's where this this in independent review came from. Um, and some of these relatives have gained, grown together and said, "Right, we need to do something about it." I think, you know, from the other side, realistically, clearly there is a need for easing the suffering mm. of, of patients, and everybody wants to have a good death, um, which you know, in most cases, means to be comfortable, to be to be in some cases free of tubes free of all those extra yes. treatments you know if you really are dying you don't want to be to be drinking down cups of tea and having a big big three course meal so an end of life care plan is extremely um, important so i think even opponents of the liverpool care pathway um, believe there is a need for it i think what um, talks like the the house of lords tomorrow will be helping to dis to to set that agenda to say look this is how it can be improved there's talk of changing its name there's talk of enforcing stricter guidelines about its use to ensure that this is a clinical decision. You know, one of the case studies we followed, um, the person that said that uh, the father should go on the Liverpool Care Pathway and the family weren't told, he was a junior doctor. He'd been out of medical school for a matter of months.
Gillian, uh, thank you very much indeed. You can see the full results of the BBC East investigation on tonight's Look East, 6.30, BBC One and BBC News Online. <laughs> 08459-455-555. How many te- uh, driving tests did you take? Later on, we'll find out why Catherine Boyle failed her first driving test. She's just let me know. Oh, dear. I'm not, I'm not very happy. So, I was looking after both the boys yesterday. My wife has gone back to work. And it was wonderful. A three-year-old and a one-year-old. But tell me, when the three-year-old locks himself in the living room and shouts through the door, I don't love you anymore, Daddy. You're not my friend anymore. Does that mean the day is going well or badly? I, 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 just, I couldn't quite work it out. I don't love you anymore, Daddy. You're not my friend anymore. Don't come into my special room. He kept calling the living room his special room. So yeah, if it's your special room, why don't you pay a little bit of the mortgage, huh? Out. Get out, sunshine. It was an exciting day. Uh, it was challenging to say... And we made a snowman. We made a snowman, even though I'd lost one of my gloves. Between my car and my house, I've lost one of my gloves. I'm furious. I keep losing a glove. So I had to make the snowman with my left glove on my right hand, back to front, and then my left hand squeezed, really squeezed into one of my wife's tiny leather posh girl's gloves. That's ruined. She'll see it this morning. She won't be happy. That's ruined. Ripped and and all wrinkled and shriveled and stuff. Uh, And then we made a snowman, but the snowman kind of without a head, really. I don't know what was going on there. I don't love you anymore, Daddy. You're not my friend. Yeah. I think that means I did some wicked parenting yesterday. In the Premier League. Oh, nuts. How am I going to say this man's name? Uh, Ollie, Ollie, come on the microphone. I've got no idea, no idea how to say this man's name in the, in the slightest. I need to say... Mar- Mariccio Panacotta. What is it? You know, I don't know. <laughs> well, you don't know. You're my football correspondent. Sorry, he's just taking over at Southampton. Um, Mariccio... I don't know, ending in an O. OK, Mauricio, thank you very much, Ollie. Uh, excellent work there, work experience, and he will be for the rest of his life after that. Mauricio Pochettino. Let's have a go at that. Led Southampton to a nil-nil draw against Everton at St Mary's in his first game in charge. Here's a song. Shaking all over. That is a song, ladies and gentlemen, that is a song. I heard a version, I listened, when I was driving to Gloucester at the weekend, three hours, I was uh, kept company by the Archers omnibus for the first half of the journey, uh, and then the second part of the journey by um, the Who's album Tommy. Listen to all of Tommy. I've not listened to that for about 20 years. What a great record. Then on the way back, I was in Who mood, so I listened to the double disc deluxe edition of the Who live at Leeds, and they do a fantastic version of Shaking All Over on there. I forgot the, the Who are flawed, okay, and Quadrophenia is overrated, but they're a flipping good band. I do like the Who. I introduced The Who on stage once. Yeah, I know. It was the coolest thing I've ever done in my life at the Royal Albert Hall for the Teenage Cancer Trust. They said, uh, do you fancy coming on and um, introducing Brett Anderson from Suede? I was like, oh, I don't really fancy it. Uh, are you free on the Thursday to introduce a band? What, what's the band? Um, the Who? Yeah, go on, I'll do that. Yeah, I'll, do, I'll introduce The Who. Yeah, I'll introduce The Who. I got to say, ladies and gentlemen, The Who. Pete Townsend uh, gave me a thumbs up and uh, tapped me on the shoulder and went, all right. I don't know if he said all right. In my head, he said all right. It was very... I do like that. Well, maybe we'll play a Who song later on. Anyway, at the end of this month, a group of celebrities are travelling from the Zambezi River in aid of comic relief. Jack D, Chelsea Healy and Melanie C were among those who had been put through their paces at the Lee Valley Whitewater Centre in Hertfordshire. We sent our intrepid reporter, Tony Fisher, along to the scene of Olympic glory and he spoke to Jack D. I, I suspect it's going to be quite, quite hard and quite a challenge. It's supposed to be because otherwise, you know, it's just going to... 
happy. Wouldn't make for fun viewing otherwise. It wouldn't be for fun viewing <laughs> if we weren't suffering. Uh, no one likes to see, uh, especially celebrities, enjoying themselves. And uh, we, uh, we at Comic Relief understand that. Do you think you all bonded quite well? Do you think you're all going to last the course? I mean, five days in... Well, 30 degree heat and down the Zambezi River it's not, uh, not quite I, the same as this I, is it? Uh, exactly I mean I, I, I have a sense that uh, training today was the equivalent to having a go on the Dodgems in order to prepare to do the Formula 1 Grand Prix in Monaco I think the difference is going to be enormous but you know just coming in and falling off the boat and getting back in it's, it just takes the curse off some of those routine exercises that we're going to have to be doing when we're out there Who was the best do you think? I think it's pretty obvious that I was, and I, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't think we need to labour that point. You know, it's, uh, there are um, a lot of professional canoeists here. I, I noticed actually watching with their jaws wide open, just watching my manoeuvring. I could see you really taking control at the helm there. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, when these things happen, it's the old SAS training kicks in. You know, I, I take over, and everyone else has to look and learn. Yeah. So you're going to be the leader out there, do you reckon, Jack? Um, I'll probably be found in a, in, a, in a quivering mess of fear and, uh, and my own mess at some point shortly after the beginning of the expedition, I should imagine. Uh, I think when you get out there, it will be, uh, it will be genuinely a fairly awesome thing to be doing, but uh, you know, we're all aware that you, you know, it's got to, you've got to do it well. And it's for a good cause at the end of the day. Well, it's fundraising, and uh, it, really what this does is provides a little bit of the decoration around uh, the important uh, bits, which are the films about people's lives out there and the difficult circumstances that they live in, to say the least. Uh, and, and that's why people donate money. And if we can uh, provide a little bit of uh, light relief in between those films, then we'll have done the, what we have set out to do. Just finally, what's it like coming to the Lee Valley White Water Centre here in Hertfordshire, the scene of such glory during the Olympics? Um, really uh, amazing. I mean, we had one of the gold medalists was giving us some instructions on, on paddling, and uh, it is a it's a fantastic facility. This and uh, this is now you can see all the, all the all the teams are now training again in the in the rapids. It's uh, it's a wonderful thing to see. It really is, and uh, it's been a great facility to be able to use today to give us a, just a little taste of what it's going to be like not quite the same as when it was set for the olympics though is it it's uh, <laughs> it's probably not no it's uh, far fewer people of course as well but uh nevertheless it's it's a great thing to see i've, I've seen one in car there's one in cardiff as well i've seen that one um but this is much bigger and apparently it's all chlorinated and and has to be to be uh, up to standard so it's an amazing amazing place are you doing any more training, or is it? Is, well, is that it? no. I'll just uh, I'll I'll just go home and do some stretching. You don't need to do any more training, do you? Obviously, I don't. know. I'll keep that one quiet. But, naturally, uh, naturally fit. That's right. But uh, you know, people like Mel will obviously be trying to keep up. They'll yeah. they'll, they'll, they'll they'll have seen where I'm up to, and I think between now and then they will have to put some time in in the gym. Yeah. Otherwise, it's you know it's going to they're going to let themselves down. We don't want that, do we? Not, not on comic relief. We really don't. We don't want anyone letting themselves down. We don't want anyone being deluded either. <laughs> there we go, that microphone. So I got excited. Jack D, they're talking to Tony Fisher. Other celebrities taking part in the challenge include Dara O'Brien, uh, and radio and DJ Greg James. Red Nose Day takes place on Friday the 15th of March. I'm busy 
that day, so I can't help out. Look, see, this is how good my team are. I asked for the who. What do we get? We get the flipping who. Pimble Wizard, I'll shut up now. Oh, studio speakers up loud. That'll wake you up. I've forgotten how good the who are. And they are flawed. You know, there's only a few albums that are, that are, that are stunning. But those good albums are flipping good. Quadrophenia is grossly overrated and is, is, is an awful mess. But Tommy, who live at Leeds? Who by numbers? Who's next? Who are you? Oh, yes, please. I'll have some of that. That's made my day. What a cracking start to the show. 08459 four double five five double five. We'll be talking about driving tests later on. On average, uh, people in the three counties are taking 11 driving tests. Some as many as 21 or 22 tests before they pass and get a driving licence. That doesn't make any sense at all, does it? My, uh, my theory, and this, if, I were, if I were king, this, this would be the rule. If you take more than five tests, you're not good enough to drive. You should not be allowed to drive. Simple as. What do you think? Makes sense, doesn't it? 08459 455 555 is the telephone number. All the lines are free. Give me a call. There's no one that can disagree with that, is there? And that's your latest news and sport. More from me at 7 o'clock. Mauricio Pochettino. Thank you very much indeed for that. So, you took took two driving tests. You passed on the second one. Yes, I did. Why did you fail the first one? What did you do wrong? I made an old man run. You did what, sorry? Well, I was doing a, I was doing a three... Well, uh, only a bit. It was more of a light jog. And yeah. um, I was doing a three-point turn. And as I yeah. did the easy, arguably easy, forward manoeuvre, um, which should set you straight and, and put you in the right position to yeah. move along, yeah. I mounted the kerb with a man on it. Ay-ya. And he did have to jog a little. I got the full young lady treatment when I got back from Could the you examiner. Not, did you did you do what was what was common in my day? And this is not in any way condoning this behaviour. And you know, in the, the 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 light of all the Savile things and everything that's gone on, a lot of young girls, seventeen, eighteen year olds, when I was a young lad, who were taking driving tests, would dress tartily to kind of influence the driving instructor. Did you do that? No, I was something of a blue stocking in my youth. Hmm. The BBC in beds, hearts and bugs. They did. This is BBC Three Counties Radio. I grew up in Slough, though, and it, it kind of explains it. Alan's in Milton Keynes. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Ian. H- how many driving tests have you taken, sir? Three. OK, that you're, you're, you're within the limit. I'll pass these one first time. Excuse me? Motorcycle test. Oh. Car test. Yeah. HGV test. Oh. Which was the hardest? Uh, yeah, see, I don't like driving anything bigger than a polo. I, 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 I drove, drove a people carrier once, I hated it. I drove a Bedford van all the way up to Manchester once, I nearly passed out with a migraine. It was awful, the stress. Uh, you got to drive the big ones. I don't know if I could. How do, how do you reverse those bad boys? Uh, it, it takes experience yep. and training and things like that. You've got to have a, a decent... Well, you know, you, you, you've got to have a spatial awareness. There's no two ways uh, about it. You've got to know where things are. Alan, would you, and would you agree with me that if, if you're taking more than five driving tests in a car, you're, you're not really built to be a driver, are you? Definitely not. I mean, the other unfortunate thing is, for the last 15 years at least, they haven't been teaching them to drive. They've merely been teaching them to pass a driving test because the schools want the pass numbers. You are good. He's right. He's right. Totally. They, they, they're just giving them what, exactly what they need. They don't, when I learned to drive 22 years ago, who would have thought I'd be able to say I did something 22 years ago when I was an adult? 22 years ago, it was a proper thorough driving and I could do emergency stops. I, could, I was taken out in different weather conditions. Everything. But th- these days, Alan, they, just, they don't teach them anything. No, I mean, you drive, I do a lot of driving on the motorway. Yeah. And 
you see them, they've got absolutely nothing in front of them. Not a clue. And they take their foot, instead of just taking their foot off the throttle to yeah. slow down, yeah. all of a sudden the brake lights are coming on all over the place, because they, you think, why are they braking? Oh, flipping heck. All right, Alan, it's, it, all right, Alan, you think you're so good. Uh-huh. It's been snowing recently, you're getting into your car, your car's covered in snow, it's all over the roof, the windows are frosted up. Uh, what's, g- give me a couple of things you should be doing before you pull away to ensure a safe journey. Well, the first thing is get the snow off the car. Well done, Alan! Well done! Ta- ta- the number of cars... I, I, was, I beat a car yesterday, Mini. The number of cars I've seen with snow thick on the top of the car, right? Yep. And, and then the snow's all... Fl- it's all flying off, going everywhere. Yep. First thing I do is take out a broom, sweep the snow off every part of the car, and especially the lights and the screens. Yep. Then clean the screens. Yep. To make sure they're all clear. Well done. The first, I open the car, turn the engine on, get the blowers going on the screens. Yep. And then start cleaning the car off. Alan, I'm going to let you go, but you and me, we're going to, I'm going to start drinking again and I'm going to buy you a pint. He's right. Take the, take the snow off of the roof of your car. I think it's in the highway code. It's a basic, because otherwise it's flying off, hitting me, causing all kinds of accidents. I mean, it's not causing an accident with me because I'm brilliant, but it could do. Alan, thank you very much indeed. 08459 455 555. He agrees with me. If you're taking more than five tests, you shouldn't be driving. You're not good enough. Well, coming up in the next 30 minutes, we're going to hear from our reporter, Victoria Cook. She's retaken her test. How well did she do? We'll find out in a bit. And there's a row brewing over some land near the M1 in Luton. Residents want a village green while the council want to build houses. Well, Justin Dealey is on his way to meet them to find out exactly what's going on. Laura Branigan. Gloria. It's an odd song, that, Gloria. One day I'm going to um, do a thesis on what on earth those lyrics mean. Because it's very, very odd. Now, BBC Three Counties Radio has discovered that nearly 2,500 people took more than 11 times to pass their driving tests here in the last five years. I know... Shocking. Our exclusive figures also revealed that at least 35 of them took more than 21 attempts at their driving test. Tests currently cost up to about 75 quid. That means that all of these drivers would have spent £800 on trying to pass their test. The practical test. Well, we're asking you this morning, should there be a limit to how many driving tests you take? Our reporter, Justin Dealey, has been finding out what you think. I think the the, uh, limit should be 10. Uh, If they're not confident pass it within the 10 then they shouldn't be on the road do you think it would make our roads a much safer place if something like that was to become law in this country i don't know whether it would or not really because uh, once they've passed the test then they've, they've passed the criteria meet they because you must be on the roads every day thinking how on earth has that person passed the driving test oh you see it all the while i'm afraid it doesn't matter whether you've been driving 20 years or 10 years what's the worst thing you've seen in the last week a woman coming past me on a bend, and she hasn't got a clue what she's doing. Can't just be the women, though. Is it the men as well? I would say six out of ten are women. Ten. What about yourself? How many attempts did it take you to pass? First time. Ah, it would be. <laughs> Definitely first time. Yeah. Well, Sue, you passed second time. Do you think there should be a maximum limit? So once you've had, I don't know, three, four, five driving tests, you failed them all, you don't carry on. What's your thoughts on that? I, I think I'd give up after five. I think so. If you don't pass it after at least probably five times. Well, yeah, if you, I think if you don't pass after five tests, I think you need to go on a monthly course or something like that. 
a lot of the cases you see learning to drive has been been taught by it's, it's a bit like the old saying it's, it's, the, it's the blind leading the blind in some cases you know I don't I don't think um, well, our results don't show this but I don't think there are any blind driving instructors out there I don't so just to correct that there we can speak now to motoring journalist Adam Rayner from Hertfordshire morning Adam good morning oh hello You're, have, we, have we woken you up <coughs> only slightly okay. just a little husky this morning <laughs> uh, th- th- there should be a limit shouldn't there on how many tests you can take um, well, yeah, just to sanity, I heard that there were some people who'd gone in excess of 20 Twen- tests. Twen- the average is 11, but some people 20, 21 tests. It's breathtaking. It's quite, quite scary, isn't it? What would you... Th- I, I think the limit should be five. Any more than five, you're, you're not... You're, some people are not meant to be drivers. Oh, gosh, you meet them all the time. Um, there's also uh, uh, a theory amongst, um, well, certainly certain driving instructors, that there are a whole host of people out there driving who never did pass a test, who've had other people do the test for them. Well, Rod, Rod Stewart! Rod Stewart was in the paper yesterday because he never passed his driving test he, in the 60s. He, couldn't, he wasn't good enough, so um, he got um, his roadie to go and sit the driving test for him. And has he still got a licence? And he's still got a licence to make love. I would, uh, I would doubt that that's um, got a statute of limitations upon it, though. <laughs> <laughs> let's, 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 I want Rod Stewart in court. How many, how many tests did you take, Adam? Um, well, I was, I was really lucky. I passed my test on the uh, magnificent use of heating and ventilation controls and asking the instructor to lean back so I could open the vent. It was raining and it was steamy and the kids were all nagging away and all the windows are steaming up and yeah. so it was more about my prowess with the, with the ventilation. Ventilating controls than the actual pedals and steering wheel and stuff. Hang on a minute, Mr. Rayner. You're telling me you passed because it was a windy, cold, rainy, steamy day, and so as long as you could make sure the windows were clear, you you got a a, a tick. He seemed to be overly impressed by my use of ventilation controls. Yes, he did. As I I say, could you lean back a moment so I can just put this ventilator on the window and good for you and all this and um, and I, I, I. it was far from perfect, but um, he seemed to, you know, he, he liked the fact that I seemed to be a confident pilot of sorts. And yes, incredibly lucky first time. Why do you think there are some people that take so long to pass their tests? Um, well, there is, uh, there, there's a certain thing that happens at the doctors when you get your blood pressure taken as well. There is this phenomenon known as um, white coat blood pressure, um, and there may be people who could be relatively competent, maybe even fully competent, who just go to mush when they're being tested and think, I'll just have another one, and then... And, of course, there's the deluded people who think they could and they just can't. There, there are some people who are just not fit. Mm. But it's a question of, of you know, how long should they be allowed to keep trying? Go on, what, what, what would you say? What, what, what number would you put on the number of tests they can take before we say, no, nope, sorry, you're not having it? Well, it's, uh, the, the trouble is, is, you know, the sociological point of view, it's the same thing that keeps um, uh, seniors driving. There's people sat on the motorway listening whose parents should not be driving. Yep. Um, likewise, uh, those public information films about uh, advising you not to drink drive, which seem to uh, emphasise the fact that should you have your licence taken away, you're reduced to the status of, of, of a child again. So there's this huge sort of freedom and autonomy thing about driving. And to stop people from trying might be a little cruel. I think perhaps as many as ten. But I, uh, I visited a very famous um, spot down in London last night to visit a chum, the Ace Caf. Oh, yes, no, very well. motoring sort of culture yeah. spot. And um, these mates who were there, they were harsh. I said, three. Three. And uh, that, that was pretty serious, I thought. Adam, listen, we have, to, we have to leave it there. Adam's saying ten. He's, being, he's in a generous mood this morning. I thought he was going to come on and be straight. He can be quite forthright. He's saying ten. I'm saying five. Thank you, Adam.
Well, we've sent our reporter, Victoria Cook, to go and retake her driving test, just to see how hard it is. She passed first time 12 years ago. Can she do it again? I've got no idea how she got on. Literally don't know. But she sent us a little sneaky, pre- uh, sneaky peek of how she fared being back in a learner car. Victoria, follow the road to the next roundabout and then turn right, which is the third exit, please. missed one opportunity so far, that was all. Oh, really? Yeah. Now I'm going to get hit by a Scania lorry. Yeah, getting hit by a Scania lorry, Victoria, I would suggest would fail. We don't know how she's got on. Find out in the next hour. Sophie Tyler, BBC Three Counties Radio. Oi, Tyler. Mm-hmm. Sorry, uh, Sophie. Sorry, <laughs> yes. overly aggra- I realise we weren't on Twitter now. We're actually <laughs> communicating in the real world to certain extent. How many driving tests did you take? Um, I'm not ashamed to say it took me four attempts. Okay. But, but yes, but go on. One, I feel I was failed very harshly. What what, what was the thing? What, what what did you fail on on that harsh test? Um, he didn't tell me that he was uh, going to make me do an emergency uh, stop. I yeah. mean, have to stop and tell you that. Oh, that's bad. That's bad because when little kiddies run out in front of you in the car and you have to do an emergency stop, they they, they should tell you they're going to do it, shouldn't they? So you know well, that it's an emergency coming up soon and be prepared for it, shouldn't you? Really. Ian, please. <laughs> actually, Stroppy. Wow. Thank you, Sophie. Sophie Tyler's actually got a cob on with my attitude. <laughs> Thank you, Sophie. Excellent stuff as always. Now, your council is likely to be under pressure to find locations for new houses. Well, some are getting quite desperate and want to build them on open spaces. Residents in Luton are currently trying to register some land by the M1 as a village green as they don't want homes there. A hearing with a government inspector is underway while well, our housing correspondent Justin Dealey is with the residents this morning. Justin, where are you and what's going on, please? Well, Ian, I have to say, lots of passion here already. It may be very early in the morning, but I'm surrounded by one, two, three, four, five, six people here. I'm on uh, Butley Road in Luton. Just to kind of fill you in with some of the background here. Uh, the land we're talking about used to belong to the building firm Wimpy. That was back in the 1960s. Now, they couldn't build on that land because it was deemed to be a little bit too close to the M1. So what they did, Wimpy, they gave the land to the local council here in Luton on the condition that it was upheld as an open space. Well, last year, a planning application went in to use this land along with two other open spaces in the town for housing. So uh, we are surrounded by the open space here. These residents are against any form of housing. And to be quite honest with you, Ian, they're absolutely furious about this. Stephanie, welcome to the programme. Um, first of all, the land here, what's it being used for at this current moment in time? It's just open space. It's used for rugby, football, golf, kite flying, picnics, you name it. It's just open space for the children and for the elderly residents to go around. And it all looks very pretty. How would it make you feel if you were to walk out here one day and instead of this open space you saw housing? I'd be absolutely devastated. We're in an area where we're already lacking in green space anyway. If this space goes, there will be nowhere in this whole area for anyone to go to just to find a bit of green. I mentioned to Ian a moment ago, back in the 1960s, Wimpy, they couldn't build here. So they gave this land to the, uh, to the council on the condition that it was used for, for open space. They're talking about building houses here. First of all, how many houses are we talking about? 56 houses. Out of those, only 13 will be rented. Some of them will be shared ownership. But as we said, if you can't afford, if you're in a council house and you haven't got the deposit, you're not going to get one anyway. Um, So they're going to be private. And the rest of them are all going to be private, making a nice profit for the developer. 
but actually only 13 people will come off the housing list anyway. Do you feel disgusted with your local council? We're absolutely furious. They've not listened to us. We've, when they put the planning application in, we proved they broke most of their own policies. They did it under Section 106, which meant they needed to put 101 million, 1.6 million to the council, and the council accepted just over 400,000 and said, no, that's OK. And then they moan they haven't got any money. So many people unhappy. Uh, Matt's here as well. Matt, we're talking about um, this development. You tried to extend your garden, didn't you? Tell us what happened there. Um, about five years ago, I tried to extend my garden by about six feet, you know, like a panel into the field, and I was blatantly told, no, it's a public open space and it will not happen. So when you heard about this development, again, how did that make you feel, considering what you tried to do yourself? Well, council obviously want to move the goalposts to suit their own benefits. Here's Rowena as well. Rowena, you couldn't take any more. Um, you're trying to make this into um, village green status. If you were to do that, do you think that would protect you at all? Well, we would hope so. They should be able to do anything when, if we get the status. So what exactly does that mean? Because we've heard about green belt status, village green status. What does that mean in layman's terms? Well, village green status means that it's protected for the community, which was our original intention. But that intention that it's protected for the community was something that we didn't know and something that the council went to great ends to conceal until this particular application. And how confident are you you're going to get that status? Who knows? It's just us little people against the big boys. They've employed a, a very expensive barrister to stand against us yesterday and today. What can you do? Is there not a need for housing, though, in Luton? Surely we need more housing in Luton. Yes, we do, but we also need green space for the children to play and run around. And this, this is the green space for the whole of the, the community, the whole of the area. You've got high-rise flats up there. In effect, that's their garden. That's what they use for picnics, barbecues. They consider it their open space. All of the estate do. Running out of time, just lastly, would you stand in front of a bulldozer if this was to go ahead and they're, and they're building homes here? I know you're laughing, but you're passionate about this. You're desperate for this not to go ahead. You'll do anything. Would you quite literally lay in front of a bulldozer to stop this going ahead? If all these people are with me, yes. And would you go along? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah? Definitely. We need to protect the space that we have. Luton's just going to be concrete. Um, Councillor Shaw has told us many times he will build on every blade of grass in Luton, including our gardens, although he now denies that. He said that to loads of people. If anybody's shouting at the radio, again in 15 seconds, saying you're just a NIMBY, what would you say to those people? <laughs> no, we just need some space for the children. Where, what, what's going to happen? They go on the concrete, uh, they hang around street corners causing problems. Where can they go? There is nowhere for them to go anymore. Guys, really appreciate your time. Thank you very much indeed. It's um, a very, very cold morning, so I'm here on Butley Road in Luton. You've heard the anger there, Ian, and, you know, we, we often cover housing stories on the programme where developments come up, but I think what's really got these people was, back in the 60s, Wimpy, they couldn't build here, so they gave the land to the council on the condition that it wasn't to be used for, for, ho for, for homes here. And they're saying the council have gone back on that, and they'll do everything they can to make sure that no homes are built here right in their back gardens. Justin, listen thank you very much we did ask uh, to, to speak to Luton Borough Council they were unable to provide us with a spokesperson they gave us a statement more than half of the open spaces will uh, open space sorry will be retained the innovative project is essential to deliver affordable homes to Luton and reduce the shortage in the area most of the brownfield sites in Luton aren't owned by the council and would cost too much to buy with the cuts to funding from government using our own land is the only way to provide affordable housing well we'll be back with Justin a little bit later on 08459 455 Five double five.
is Ian Lee, BBC Three Counties Radio. It's seven o'clock. It was chilly last night, wasn't it? Very, very chilly. Although I woke up in the middle of the night and suddenly my three-year-old boy's in bed with me. I've got no idea. And I, I, I knew this because when you see pictures of kids in bed with their parents, right, and when you see it on, on TV programs, it's all very cosy and stuff like this. You've got the, the dad and then the child and then the mom, and it's all cosy. That's not the reality. If you've ever had a child sleep in your bed, that's not how it works. They don't have their head on the pillows and their feet going down the end of the bed. He was lying lengthways in the bed. Lengthways. And kick, he was kicking me in the head. That's what woke me up at half past 12 this morning. Thanks very much for that, son. This is also after he told me he didn't love me anymore and he wasn't my friend anymore. <laughs> what a day yesterday. What a day. Lots coming up on the show this morning that I know you will want to have your say on, including a BBC investigation has revealed concerns over how the Liverpool Care Pathway is being used in three counties' hospitals. I'll be speaking to a woman who found out her pathway, uh, her father sorry, was on the pathway just hours before he died. And should there be a limit on the number of driving tests you should be able to do? Thousands of motorists in the three counties did 11 tests each. Some took 21 tests. Five, that's the limit. Any more than five, you shouldn't be allowed to drive. Well, our reporter, Victoria Cook, has taken her test again. She's brave. I don't know if she passed. We'll find out in a bit. And residents in Luton want an open space near the M1 to be designated as a village green. The council wants to use it to build houses. And the residents, as you can guess, are furious. We'll hear more from them in the next hour. If you want to get in touch, facebook.com forward slash BBC3CR. Always good to go on there. Uh, and you can have a little argument with the other listeners. Play nice, don't be rude. Be a little... Well, be, you know, be feisty. Be feisty. Don't be sweary. But go on there and have an argument. I'll, I'll have a look at those later on. You can send me a text, 81333, starting your text 3CR. Or, the best way to get in touch, 08459 455 Five double five. If you took more than five tests, you don't deserve to drive. BBC Three Counties Radio. Hospitals in the three counties are being given incentives to encourage them to put more patients on the Liverpool Care Pathway. A BBC investigation has found that one local hospital trust was paid more than £100,000 for boosting the number of terminally ill patients on the scheme. You put on the pathway when there is no more treatment available and instead it focuses on palliative care. Well, Julian Sturdy from BBC East has been investigating into how the LCP is being used in hospitals in the three counties. The Luton and Dunstable Hospital, 678 people have been put on the Liverpool Care Pathway in the last three years. Of course, most of the vast majority of those will have gone on to die. One or two people sometimes come off it. Um, over in, in Milton Keynes, they, like some hospitals, they haven't been collecting the figures, but they were able to tell us that in, in the 11 months of last year, half the inpatients, half the ward patients... Um, outside A&E died while on the Liverpool Care Pathway. The number's quite low, 276 out of 571. And then over in Bedford, where um, they weren't able to collect the figures, but both Bedford and East and North Hearts, so that's the hospitals like QE Wellin and the Lister at Stevenage, both of those were offered these sequin payments. In the case of, of Hearts, they received just under £200,000 as a bonus for reaching targets about the best care of, of Liverpool Care Pathway. Well, Dr Peter Saunders is uh, the campaign director for Care Not Killing. Morning, Doctor. 
Good morning. Uh, we'll come to you in a second. First, I want to speak to Denise Charlesworth-Smith, uh, whose father, Phil Charlesworth, died last year after being put on the pathway. Morning, Denise. Uh, good morning to you. When did you find out that um, your dad was on the pathway? Well, actually, that's the funny thing. We didn't really know that he was on the pathway um, until um, October this year when we backtracked to find out what um, was said in passing on the morning that he died uh, that he was on LCP. We thought it was a drug. So no one explained to you what LCP was? No, absolutely not. They just said, um, Phil's on LCP and that's all we can do? Well, kind basi- of thing. Ba- basically what happened was, my, my dad was, um, he'd been taken into hospital for um, shortage of breath, which turned out to be pneumonia. Mm. And on the morning that he died, um, it which was about seven o'clock, he threw back the bed covers and wanted to get out of bed and you know, t- tried to take his mask off and everything. And we ran out to go and get somebody to help him to go to the loo. And um, a comment was made, oh, they always do that when they're on LCP. And um, we just sort of thought, oh, it was some type of drug thing. We didn't know what it was. Absolutely nothing at all. And if we had known about it, I wouldn't be talking to you today because obviously I would have known what LCP was all about. Mm. It was the fact that nobody told us anything about it. Do you... Because uh, I don't know what the, exactly what condition your, your, your dad was in. Do you think he would have lived if he hadn't been on LCP, or, or, or was his passing inevitable, do you think? Well, uh, um, it's a 50-50 chance, right. isn't it, really, when you've got pneumonia, and especially at the age of 82. But um, to say that he had been sitting up and talking to us um, the afternoon you know, prior to that, and he was discussing um, changing the mask, of all things. This is a funny bit. My dad was an engineer, and he was discussing about the mask that was on his face and saying when he get out, get, got out, he wanted to redesign the mask oh, so it would be a bit more comfortable. <laughs> so, you know, uh, somebody who was quite chatty and then talking about a domestic appliance that he wanted my husband to sort out and everything else, to me, that was not somebody who was on his last throes of life that was somebody who i was expecting you know fingers crossed and everything that he would walk out of that hospital but people in fairness people don't always know um that they're they're close to death do they i have uh, uh, have seen um uh, people who were unaware that they were dying and talking about what they want to do when they get home and 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 things like that yes that's true I mean, you, you, you don't know that, but, I mean, as, as I say, at 82, I was keeping my fingers crossed that he would walk out, but nobody told us that he wouldn't. Nobody mm. explained to us that he was ill or how ill he was. And this, this is a problem, yeah. see. It's, all, it's the communication. I mean, I've, I've, I know your other person that's on the programme with you this morning, Peter, he has met me before. He's heard me discuss about it. And it is a communication issue that is a huge problem because people do not know, they do not understand when you're faced with a situation that's not a hospice case, um, you, you know, you do want to understand what's happening so you can make arrangements. Peter, well, you, you mentioned Peter. Peter uh, is here. Peter, the, the lack of communication seems to be a huge problem. I find it incredible that they just said to Denise, oh, yeah, he's on LCP, that's what happens, uh, and didn't explain what, what LCP is. Yes, and the, the, the lack of communication in some cases has been extremely poor. And I, I think the key question is, what is the LCP? And as people know... Britain's been a world leader in care of the dying for many, many years. And the whole idea behind the LCP was to take the excellent care that's already available in hospices or under palliative care teams and make it much more widely accessible 
in uh, general hospitals. So it was helping people in the final stages of life deal with difficult symptoms like pain and nausea and uh, anxiety and ad address their spiritual needs. So this was was developed in Liverpool by the Royal Liverpool Hospital of Mary Curie and it was rolled out over the country after NICE and a government white paper endorsed it. And mm. it's had very wide support, 20 leading organisations in end-of-life care, a 1,000 prominent doctors have backed it and it's had largely good reviews. But as you've heard from Denise, there have been real problems too in its implementation in some cases and uh, you've outlined some of them already one of them is a failure of communication so that relatives are not properly informed uh, why their their loved ones are being put on it and and what it's for another problem is that we've had some people who've who've not been imminently dying who've been placed on it it's only meant for those in the last hours or at most a few days of life but there have been some people inappropriately placed on it. And then uh, there have been problems with inadequate training and supervision of perhaps junior staff who may not be fully trained in it. And then there's this whole issue of sequin payments being given to hospitals. Well, this is what I'm asking. So it, it, kind of incentive the, 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 the incentive, so you, you agree with it in principle, as long as it's um, applied appropriately to those deserving of it and it's communicated to the family. Uh, but the, the, the incentive thing does seem odd that hospitals can be paid money for the amount of people they put on the scheme. Yes, our position is that we, we think this is a tool which, when used correctly, actually improves the care of thousands of patients. Mm. Uh, when, when you follow the guidelines properly. But when people don't, then like any tool in, in bad hands or badly trained hands, you can get problems. And, and what, one of the big issues is these sequin payments. Now, we know that government hospitals and NHS trusts get all sorts of incentives for meeting government targets now but uh, it's our belief that linking targets to the number of people placed on a pathway mm. uh, just creates all the wrong kind of incentives we th we think that those that money should be given to uh, hospitals and trusts which train people properly to look after the dying but not linked to any numbers at all people should only go on a pathway like this if if uh, it's indicated by their condition, but it should be made on clinical grounds, not on the basis of any, um, you know, uh, economic targets or or uh, otherwise you just get managerial pressure and tired staff are untrained and, and, and then problems come. Denise, you're speaking at the House of Lords on Wednesday, aren't you? What, what are you planning to say? Um, well, uh, I'm, I'm talking with um, four doctors um, who are there, and prof well, professors, really. Um, I'm basically trying to bang it home what's, what's happened to my dad. Um, I'm also hoping to get these sequin payments abolished if I can, because I think it's totally and utterly ridiculous to have something which could be taken as an incentive. Um, I'm also looking to uh, find out exactly what is right about LCP and what's wrong about LCP and how we can put that um, right for the future. I mean, I, I do believe that there is a place for everything and everything in its place, as my auntie used to say to me. But I think it's, it's the sheer fact that something has gone wrong and there's a lot of scaremongering going on. I do know on one of the uh, social networking sites, um, they're demonising it almost. They've got um, horrible posters and everything which look very, 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 very scary, to be quite honest. And I think that's over-egging the pudding, to be quite honest, with what they're trying to do. And 
my thoughts are that um, as, as far as, you know, the, the care of the dying um, and those who are, you know, very, very unwell, there needs to be something, but there needs to be better communication and the families need to understand exactly what it is that is going wrong with the relative who is unwell. OK, we have to end it there, Denise Charles-Smith. Thank you very much, Dr Peter Saunders. I feel slightly cheated. As you know, I'm a fan of Big Brother. I like Big Brother. It's my dirty pleasure and I do take a little bit of cash every now and then to talk about it. I've just found out today that uh, Ryland Clark, who I believe was the Muppet from The X Factor, a show I never saw... He's been allowed out of the house a couple of times to go on, go on, um, have a choreograph, choreograph, choreograph. And why do I sound funny saying choreograph, choreograph? Go and have dance lessons, is what he's doing. He's going to have dance lessons. So he's been out of the house for a few hours to have dance lessons. Suddenly I feel cheated. I, I, I know I shouldn't get upset about these things. It's celebrity big brother, for goodness sakes. But... I was quite annoyed. In fact, but political reporter Paul Scoynes sent me an email d- detailing what happened uh, with the, uh, the subject heading WTF. I don't know what that means. I'll have to ask him later on. But I was outraged. Anyway, BBC Three Counties Radio has discovered that nearly 2,500 people took more than 11 attempts to pass their driving tests here in the last five years. Our exclusive figures also reveal that at least 35 of them took <clears throat> 21 attempts at a driving test. Can you believe it? A driving test too hard these days? I don't think they are. No, I think if you do more than five tests, you're out. Well, we sent our reporter, Victoria Cook, to the David Bailey Driving School in High Wycombe to retake her test. Now, she's good, Victoria. She passed first time 12 years ago. Can she do it again? Or has the test got too hard? It's time to find out. Victoria, we're going to go for a drive for about 40 minutes approximately. In that 40 minutes, we are going to do one manoeuvre and one independent drive. Okay. I will be pulling you up on the left several times and I will explain what I want after that. Okay. Okay. At all times during the test, unless I tell you differently, follow the road ahead. So, i.e. at a roundabout, follow the road ahead, at a crossroads or, or whatever, follow the road ahead unless I tell you differently. Nothing said, straight ahead. Nothing said straight ahead. <laughs> I remember that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So good. when you're ready and it's safe to do so, can you pull away? Go to the end of the road and turn right. You've missed one opportunity so far. That was all. Oh really? Yeah. You're just protruding onto the um, yeah, the batter smidge. Now I'm protruding even more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was horrible. And that's you with all that experience. I know. That's horrible. That, that was horrible. Like I just felt like I couldn't get out of the roundabout at all. But at the same time, you feel pressured to do it by yeah. the people behind you. Maybe. And that's strange. Also, you know, with the, that little roll back there. Did I roll back? You've done it three times now. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So what you're doing, you're releasing... You're releasing the foot brake, releasing the handbrake, yeah. and rolling back, or releasing your foot brake before you've got biting point. Uh, Hence, you only roll back probably about, I don't know, four or five inches. I didn't but, even notice it at all. But if the car behind you is coming up too close, you're just going to roll back into it. Oh my goodness. Roundabout, turn left. 
test over now, Victoria. Right. Unfortunately, you've not passed. Oh, no. Uh, you had a couple of situations there. Uh, you've got two serious faults with one, two, three, three minors. So you've got three minor faults, but two serious faults. And what were they? The serious fault was when you encroached on the roundabout to turn right. Obviously, that put us in danger when you'd crossed over the giveaway line oh, at yeah. that roundabout. The second series was on your turn in the road. If you remember, when we were on the reverse leg of your turn in the road, there was three children running along. Yeah. You should be stationary until they're safely passed. So that would have been a, a fail, but with only three minors, but obviously a st- too serious. Yeah. So other than us nearly crashing at roundabout and nearly uh, squashing some children, it was all right. <laughs> not bad, not bad. And you had a bad time of day to do it, to be fair to you. She muffed it up, and legally we have to confiscate her driving licence and fire her from the BBC. Uh, That was Victoria Cook with driving instructor David Bailey. We're asking you this morning, should there be a limit to how many driving tests you take? And to the gentleman who posted a naughty swear word on the Facebook page, there is an inbuilt sensor. So uh, only we saw that message, and thank you for your criticism. It is appreciated. Uh, Neil Gregg is the Director of Policy and Research at the Institute of Advanced Motorists. Morning, Neil. Good morning. Uh, There should be a limit, shouldn't there, on how many tests people can take? Well, I I don't agree, I'm afraid. I think ultimately the test is finding out that you've got a problem and I think putting an arbitrary limit on it might be difficult for some people. Some people take a long time to learn things. Some people get very nervous, as we've just seen and heard in an an exam situation when they feel they're under pressure. So it it can be a, a useful opportunity for people to get more experience deal with their problems and keep coming back 21 is an awful lot i don't know how you could afford that for a start yeah it's a lot uh, of money i don't think an actual limit really would but you say but people get people get nervous in in test situations i don't want people who are nervous in cars driving on the roads because because the the driving can be a tense and frustrating and sometimes frightening experience if you can't handle the pressure of having a man a bald man in his 50s sitting next to you ticking a a, a clip chart then what hope have you got to to drive safely on the roads but but the test is picking that up and you will you'll have you will continue to have to take the test until so that the test is working it's catching these people the overall pass rate is actually still only about 50 percent men have a slightly better pass rate than women but but for many many years now the pass rate has remained at 50 percent the main reason for that is that people try and take the test too quickly. They're yeah. underprepared. Um, these people who are uh, failing 21 times are actually very unusual, uh, but they, they clearly have an issue. But the driving test is picking that up. To driving is because I, I learned 22 years ago, uh, and my drive. I kept saying, "Can I take my test now?" He said, "No, you're not ready. No, you're not ready." And I, at the time, I thought, "Oh, he's this guy's clever. He's scamming me for more lessons." But there was. I remember one lesson after the lesson, he went, "Right, I think you should apply for your test now. I think you're there." And I passed first time. Uh, so he was spot on. Do, do driving instructors, are, are they like that these days? Do they, or, or do they encourage people to take their tests too early? Well, often it's the people themselves who push the, the driving instructor will, is the best person to advise you on the state of your driving and advise when to take it. But people want to, do, to get there as quickly and as cheaply as possible. That, that's for some reason, driving is one of these areas where we, we want to get there as cheaply and as quickly as possible, and yet it's a, sort of, it's a thing that can kill you. Mm. You should really be taking it seriously. It's a, it's a lifelong skill you're trying to learn here, so you should take it seriously, listen to your driving instructor but the, the driving test itself has got a bit more difficult you independent driving was mentioned in the clip there uh, that's where 
you are not given instructions. You're just told to follow the signs or freestyle. You're freestyling. Yeah, and yeah. We, we think that's a gr- uh, that was a really good improvement. That makes people think a bit more because you know once you've passed your test, you don't have a bald fifty year old man telling you to turn left, turn right on every journey. So you need to be thinking for yourself. So it has improved. We'd like to see it go even further. Actually, we'd like to see uh, rural roads being included for a start. Um, most tests take place on oh. thirty and forty miles per hour roads in towns and uh, cities. Uh, people don't get out onto the rural roads, which ultimately are the ones which are the most dangerous. Sophie Tyler, who is um, our, our travel correspondent, she failed a driving test because um, the examiner didn't tell her that he was about to tap the dashboard and do an emergency stop. So he just did it. it was she right to have failed then? Normally you are told it's about to happen at some point. Um, yeah, by, by definition, an emergency stop should Thank be a you. surprise. But, uh, yep. yeah, uh, you know, it, it's how you, you handle these things. And, and it, it is as, it's a case of the amount of minor errors you tot up. But if you get a couple of serious errors, yep. then you, you fail automatically. So and and Catherine, Boyle, Catherine Boyle uh, went up on the curb and made an old man run. That's, that's obviously a fail, isn't it? Clearly, yes. Clearly. Neil, I have to ask the question. How many tests did you take? I actually, it took me two. I, I, I perhaps rushed in, as I said, yep. but I, the second time round I passed. And I have also, of course, passed my advanced driving <laughs> test since yeah, then. Of course you have. Neil, listen, thank you very much indeed. Neil Gregg, Director of Policy and Research at the Institute of Advanced Motorists. I do, I do genuinely, this isn't me being contentious and being argumentative, I do genuinely believe that some people are not cut out for driving. My sister passed her driving test... She's a rubbish driver. I, I can say that because I know that she's not listening to this, although one of you losers will tweet her, no doubt. You weasels. You snakes in the grass. Uh, but th- there are some people that shouldn't pass, shouldn't be allowed to drive. Five is plenty. If you've not passed within five, you're not a driver. And, uh, of course, uh, the, the, the driving exam, the driving test, is terrifying. And it's nerve-wracking. But... It's no worse than some of the worst driving conditions I've been in. If you can't cope with a a, a divorced man in his 50s wearing a cheap leather jacket, ticking little boxes on a a clipboard next to you and tapping the the dash... That's what they look like, isn't it? Tapping the dashboard. If you can't cope with the stress of that, then, really, you're not cut out to be a driver, are you? 08459 455 555. Bill in Lucy Farm says, I, I mostly agree with the idea of five tries on your driving test before you're barred, but I also wish people were tested more often. I was a first-time passer, but I'm now considering a voluntary retest to see if I'm still fit after medical issues. Yeah, I'd go with that. I'd go with that. I've said before, if you're over 65, you should have a test, what, every, every three years? Uh, I think you should le- be able to learn to drive later. S- 17 is way too young. What, 22? Should we start learning to drive at 22? And a test every 10 years until you're 65. How about that? I'd be up for that. I think that makes perfect sense. Yes, there are too many people on the roads, and there are too many people driving who do not know how to drive. Travel, uh, not travel news, uh, news and sport now. Here's Catherine Boyle. Getting beds, hearts and bugs talking. This is BBC Three Counties Radio. Kath? Catherine? 
I'm here. It's 7.30, your headlines. And that's your latest news and sport. I'll be back on time in about half an hour. Just to remind... Uh, just, uh, <laughs> reminder, uh, Catherine. So, uh, at the top of the hour, so when <laughs> the big hand is pointing... The, the, you, you know what I'm saying? 7 yeah. o'clock and 7.30. Sorry. So all you have to do... Sorry. Where were you? Working. Tell me what you... <laughs> tell the listener what you told me you were doing. A three-point turn into my seat. Thank you very much indeed. Call 08459 455 555. 08459 455 555. BBC Three Counties Radio. Here's something. Well, I was trying to tell Catherine there, when it's the hour, I couldn't remember if it was the big hand or the little hand that pointed to the, tw- to the 12. Isn't that silly? It's all digital now these days. Although I've gone back to, um, what would you call it, an analogue watch? What would you call that? What's a watch with numbers on and dials? Analogue, I guess. Why not? Yeah, okay, fine. I've gone back to that, and I'm really struggling to learn how to tell the time. A watch with a face. Though all watches have got faces, Laura Producer, even digital watches, for goodness sakes. Uh, Analogue, we'll call it, until, until otherwise. Uh, Ian Lee, BBC Three Counties Radio. Coming up in the next half an hour, Prince Harry is on his way back to the UK from Afghanistan after finishing his 20-week tour of duty there as a gunner and co-pilot of an Apache helicopter. He's admitted that he ha- uh, he's killed insurgents. We'll find out more about what he said next. And residents in Luton want an open space near the M1 to be designated as a village green. The council wants to build houses. The residents are understandably furious. Justin Dealey is with them. We'll hear what they have to say in about 20 minutes and seriously you're taking more than five driving tests you're not good enough to drive on britain's roads now the story on the front page of most of your newspapers this morning is prince harry on his way back to the uk from afghanistan after finishing his 20-week tour of duty there as a gunner and co-pilot of an apache helicopter the prince gave media interviews while at camp bastion which can only be broadcast now during an interview harry admitted that he had killed insurgents take a life to save a life that's what we sort of revolve around i suppose if there's people trying to do bad stuff to our guys then you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take them out of the game, I suppose. It's not the reason I decided to do this to do this job. The reason I did this job was to get out back out here and, and, and carry on and carry on with a job. Well, we can talk now to Robert Fox, the defence correspondent for the Evening Standard. Morning, Robert. Good morning. What's your reaction to, to this story? Well, um, the, take a life to save a life, and what he did as a gunner, and that he might have the, the, that he might have killed people. It's pretty unsurprising. Uh, the thing is that if he did 20 weeks, as you say, as the weapons officer, the co-pilot in one of these uh, these killing machines, and they didn't do anything, um, as some might argue that it was a dereliction of duty. That's not surprising. What I, what I was uh, um, surprised in a way about was his vehemence about the press, that he feels that he was done over last time. And with him and his brother, of course, the wound still goes very deep as to what happened to their mother. Well, because yeah, he, he, of course there were the, the pictures which the son have uh, chosen to re- reprint again of him in the nuddy. Uh, and he was obviously very upset about that. Is this kind of uh, uh, him doing these interviews? Is this him trying to re- rebuild any damage that may have been done there? Well, I think, uh, uh, yeah, I think that comes into it. But it's really, um, we have seen him more and more closing ceremony at the Olympics and so on, doing more and more public duties. Um, he's very, very, very popular in, indeed. 
and he's got an absolutely natural touch that perhaps his brother and his father don't have of mixing the formal and the informal and the royal family love him very much for that and uh, as to the country I mean, the real breakthrough was uh, uh, that extraordinary visit before going to Afghanistan that he did um, that he did in Brazil where he, 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 he really he really pulled it off but what I found fascinating about these interviews that he did find the irksome but he is an absolute natural fit as a soldier as this kind of this this kind of man he loves the blokes they get on very well with him and they 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 respect him and he was really annoyed when he was pulled out because uh, he was bubbled he was outed by an australian magazine last time round in afghanistan he was bubbled i've never heard that phrase before oh it's an army expression oh, i've never heard <laughs> that's that's why i've not heard it there are some people robert who might might say look he's a hero to to millions of young people lots of people look up to him should he really be allowed as a role model to to be bragging about killing i don't think he was bragging about killing i mean that's that that is a construction he was asked to, to describe his job and actually i thought it was very very circumspect i mean it was it was a young fighting soldier describing his job um uh, i think that's being a little bit uh, carrying uh, political correctness too far to, to say that i mean what do soldiers do i mean that's the thing that they risk their lives uh, in the, in the service of their country to um uh, as the formula says, to fight the Queen's enemies and defend her friends. And he actually happens to know the Queen's no, no, well. it's, it's his grand. It's, he's fighting for his grand to it's defend what it her. Is, but what she stands for, exactly. Yes. Um, and it is his job. Uh, he is... He is very, very good at that, and I think that he was serving notice in these interviews, too, that he intends to go on uh, in, the, in the army for as long as he possibly can, because as he felt that it was one of the three things in his life that, uh, that, 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 that he's devoted to. Uh, his devotion to his grandmother, incidentally, it came across. It wasn't laid on with a trial, but it came across very, very strongly, and he does see that, uh, that as part of his life. I thought, compared with some of the other interviews that he'd done when he was very very young this is quite a deft performance by him oh he's definitely growing up isn't he what's what's next for him robert where, where does he go from here well i think that he, he's going to have a bit of holiday i think that w- what might be a sad reflection for, for him and i'm going to write about it t- in, in the paper today is he's coming home he can choose what he d- does next but some of the people that he's coming home with who won't be able to choose what they mm. do next they're going to be fired it's very true, yes. Robert uh, Fox, Defence Correspondent for the Evening Standard. Thank you very much indeed. 08459 455 555. We're going all over the shop this morning. Driving tests. If you do more than uh, five, I genuinely believe you're not fit to drive on our roads. I passed first time. Why? Because I paid attention and I have the requisite skills to be a safe driver. You do it more than five times, you just haven't got it. Don in Bedford uh, on uh, there's some texts here eight one three double three starting the text three CR I took my test ten times I had the same examiner for five of them by the end I got to know him quite well he had, no he ended up as the best man at my wedding Don really hmm. and on the Facebook page facebook.com forward slash BBC three CR Matt says the driving test is ridiculous driving is such an important skill where a person is in charge of something that has the ability to kill many people in an instant driving should be part of the education system we should be taught in a much more responsible way then maybe we wouldn't have so many deaths on our roads 
Text 81333. Start your message with 3CR. Text charged at the standard network rate. This is BBC Three Counties Radio. Celebrities have been gearing up for their latest challenge at the end of this month uh, of travelling down the Zambezi River in aid of comic relief. Jack D, Melanie C and Chelsea Healy. I don't know who this Chelsea Healy is. I've got no idea. Who, uh, <laughs> Producer Laura, you're nodding, saying yes you do. Come and do the, who, who is this Chelsea Healy? Healy. Oh. Um, yes. Chelsea Healy, she yes. was in Strictly Come Dancing last season. Right. And she did really well. I think she came second. Right. And before that, she was in that BBC One programme, uh, which features on the school. Um, on the school? Yeah, the school. It's on about eight o'clock. It's Waterloo on- Road. Waterloo Road. So she's an actress? Yes. What does she look like? Um, she is attractive. She often wears fake tan. She oh. has big hair and she's quite petite. And she, um, she, uh, I, I'm trying to find the right words to say it. She looks a bit tarty. Um, your words not mine. Thank you very much. I'm going to Google her. I'll Google her while we listen to this. We sent our reporter, Tony Fisher, along to the scene of Olympic glory, the Lee Valley Whitewater Centre in Hertfordshire, to see how they get on. I'm just going to quickly Google this Chelsea Healy. I'm here at the Lee Valley White Water Centre in Hertfordshire, scene of Olympic glory, Etienne Stott. But there's different scenes going on here today as some celebrities are getting ready for their challenge of going down the Zambezi River. Hi, I'm Chelsea Healer. Chelsea, what was it like out there? It was scary, it was exciting and it was fun. I really enjoyed myself actually. I wasn't too sure what I was letting myself in for, so now I'm a bit more aware of... What um, I've, I've had a little taste of as to what, what's going to be happening and what I am going to be doing, so yeah. Because we all know you can dance, um, but can you actually do this, do you think? I'm not sure. I'll let you know when I come back from Africa. <laughs> I'm hoping so. I mean, I love to set myself a challenge and the cause is just, like, amazing. So, you know, I'm doing it for, for, for them, really. So I will get through it. I always do. Well, I'm Jack D, and I'm uh, going on the Hell and High Water expedition down the Zambezi for uh, comic relief. I, 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 I suspect it's going to be quite, quite hard and quite a challenge. It's supposed to be, because otherwise, you know, it's just going to... Wouldn't make for fun viewing otherwise. It wouldn't be for fun viewing <laughs> if we weren't suffering. Uh, no one likes to see, uh, especially celebrities, enjoying themselves. And uh, we, uh, we at Comic Relief understand that. Do you think you all bonded quite well? Do you think you're all going to last the course? I mean, five days in... Well, 30 degree heat and down the Zambezi River it's not, uh, not I, quite the same as this I, is it? Uh, exactly, I mean I, I, I have a sense that uh, training today was uh, the equivalent to having a go on the Dodgems in order to prepare to do the Formula 1 Grand Prix in Monaco I think the difference is going to be enormous Who was the best do you think? I think it's pretty obvious that I was, and I, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't think we need to labour that point. You know, it's, uh, there are a lot of professional canoeists here. I, I noticed actually watching with their jaws wide open, just watching my manoeuvring. I could see you really taking control at the helm there. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, when these things happen, it's the old SAS training kicks in. I, I take over, and everyone else has to look and learn. We don't want anyone let themselves down. We don't want anyone being deluded either. <laughs> Hello, I'm Melanie C. Now, you're inside because you're a bit cold, but when you go down the Zambezi, you're talking 30-degree heat, it's going to be a totally different kettle of fish, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, it's interesting because, you know, today was so important to learn 
mm. what we've got in store. But really, the the biggest problem today was the temperature. It's absolutely freezing. You know, it's January. It's about two degrees, and that water was cold. And even though we had all the kit on, it was still you know pretty tough keeping the extremities warm. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to the warmth of Zambia, but um, I'm not so much looking forward to all the other things that we mosquitoes might see. and things. Um, yeah, mosquitoes, hippos, crocs, spiders. Mm. Um, yeah, rocks, etc. But as uh, Jack <laughs> Jack D was saying, you know, it seems to be the norm now for celebrities to suffer on TV. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I think we all deserve to. You know, we live such charmed lives. I think um, it's it's only right. <laughs> Crocs, what those rubbery shoes? I'm genetically predisposed not to like Melanie C and everything she stands for. But I met her once. She's lovely. She's such a nice person. Uh, other celebrities taking part in the challenge include Dara O'Brien and Radio 1 DJ Greg James. Red Nose Day takes place on Friday the 15th of March. I've looked up Chelsea Healy. I mean, they say looked up, but I've Googled her. Still not got a clue who she is. But Paul Scoynes has sent me some very interesting pictures. Thank you very much for those, Paul. I'll, I'll study those later on. With local councils becoming ever more desperate for land to use for housing, some are resorting to building on open spaces. Well, residents in Luton are currently trying to register some land by the M1 as a village green which would give it more protection. A hearing with a government inspector is underway. Well, our reporter, Justin Dealey, is with the residents this morning. Justin, where exactly are you and what's going on? Justin. In, hello, Ian. Hello. I'm on Butley Road in Luton. Um, to give you some of the background here, Wimpy, they bought this land back in the 1960s and they couldn't build in it because it was too close to the M1. So what they did, they then gave that back to the land on the provision that it was given to the local people and it couldn't be used for housing. So here we are now talking about Luton Borough Council potentially using this open space here to build houses. So as you can imagine, the locals are, are absolutely furious. Just, Justin, I'm sorry to interrupt. Mm. We have a terrible connection for some reason. I'm going to go to our guest Kate yes. Ashbrook and come back to you in a couple of minutes. Is no that okay? No Thank, I, want to, I want to hear this and I want to hear this in HD. Well, we can. Uh, we'll go back to Justin in a bit and uh, see who he's with and what the residents think. Well, Kate Ashbrook is the General Secretary of the Open Spaces Society. Morning, Kate. Hello. What a fantastic title. The Open Spaces Society. Oh, absolutely. Wonderful. What What is a village green? Because when I hear of a village green, I think of a square of grass where they play cricket every Sunday, uh, there's a little pond and it's by a pub. But it doesn't necessarily mean that, does it? No, it doesn't. It can be that. It usually is that. But more often nowadays, the new greens are areas of land that local people have used for 20 years without being stopped, without asking permission. And they've used it for informal recreation. And so it could be anywhere. It could, it could be by a motorway. Yeah, absolutely, if that's where local people go to um, enjoy recreation. And so residents can apply to turn this, this bit of green area uh, into a, and have it legally labelled as a village green. How do they make that application? What do they do? Well, first of all, they, they collect the evidence from local people who use the land. And then they fill in various forms. And they send um, all the forms with the evidence off to the registration authority, which might be Luton, it might be Central Beds, it might be Hearts or Bucks um, or Milton Keynes. Uh, there, you see, I'm getting around your area. Well done, thank <laughs> you, Kay. You're good, you're coming back. <laughs> and uh, one of those is the county or unitary authority, anyway. And the authority will look at it, and if they think it's um, got um, potential, it's uh, duly made, as they call it, they will then advertise it, there is six weeks allowed for objections. If there are objections, the authority will then quite likely hold a public inquiry, as they're doing um, at Ickley Close. And the um, inspector 
will then make a recommendation to the council, but it's the council that takes the final decision. So, hang on, if the ca- if, if they're doomed, then aren't they? If, if it's the council that's taking the final decision, but it's the council that wants to build on that land, then there's it's pointless, isn't it, to apply for this? Well, it may sound it, but the council should be able to put itself into different compartments. Right. It should be able to be registration authority looking at the evidence, and it's not and it's nothing to do with whether people want the land or whether it's threatened with development. That's completely irrelevant. Mm. It's whether they've got the evidence of use. Right. That's the only thing that matters, and that it's local people. And then it, be- it gets given um, the, the, the status of uh, um, uh, Village Green. Is it then protected forever? Yes. It is. Under Victorian legislation, it is protected. And if somebody wants to build on it or do something there that is contrary to its use by local people, um, they can't do that. But the alternative is that they could buy another area of Village Green and give it an exchange. And the Secretary of State would have to approve that, but it can be done. Are more and more people uh, uh, applying for this, uh, the Village Green status? I've, I've certainly heard about it more in the last couple of years, and with, with councils looking to build more and more houses, are, are people becoming more desperate? They are, yes, and, uh, you know, once a bit of land is threatened and you have loved it all your life, you want to save it. I mean, the problem is that we've now got the government w- introducing the Growth and Infrastructure Bill, which aims to put a stop to registering any land that's threatened with development. So, you know, in a few months' time, Ickley Close could not have been registered, for instance. Mm. Because, and, and this is a really nasty piece of legislation. They're saying um, that there are various triggers which are all to do with planning, and once the trigger has taken effect, nobody can even apply to register the land, but they won't know that the trigger has taken effect until it takes effect. So there's a whole secret process about designating land for planning. It's published... And at that point, it's too late to save the land. So we're desperately trying to get this bill changed. And we're also saying to people, look around your communities, and if there is land that you've used for 20 years, for heaven's sake, try and get it, apply to register it before this bill becomes an act. As General Secretary of the Open Spaces Society, is it disheartening to see these places going? Oh, very, yes, because they're places that people have loved and enjoyed, you know, and they mean something to the community. They're very precious. So, yes, it's very tragic when they, we see them being built on. Uh, Kate, listen, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for uh, your expert uh, input. Kate Ashbrook, General Secretary of the Open Spaces Society. What a fantastically named organisation. And it's interesting, isn't it, about that bill that's being brought in that means it would actually be more difficult, if not impossible, to apply for this, this, this protection of your area. Oh eight four five nine four double five five double five. It's interesting, isn't it? I, I, as always, not always, as often with with a lot of these stories, I can kind of see both sides of this. Uh, yeah, more houses need to be built. Of course they do. But I wouldn't want it in my back garden. I'm a proper nimby. I wouldn't want it in my back garden. I'd be thoroughly disappointed. I wait four five nine four double five five double five. A little bit of uh, problems getting to Justin Dealey, so we will uh, speak to him uh, later on in the show. Uh, right, we're talking about driving tests this morning after uh, our reporter Victoria Cook discovered that th- a huge number of people in beds, hearts, and bucks were taking eleven driving tests to pass. I'm of the firm belief: if it takes more than five tests, you shouldn't be allowed to drive. That's it. You're out. Well, Shirley, uh, Shirley Joe in Houghton Regis. Good morning. Good morning, Ian. Is it, is it Shirley Joe? It is. No, fantastic. What, what's your take on this? How many driving tests did you take? One. There we go. Well, and, and it's not that difficult, is it? If you've prepared enough, and if you're if you've done the training, and all these people saying, "Oh yes," but it's so nerve wracking doing a driving test. Well, 
That's tough, isn't it? I think if you're well prepared, yep. um, then your instructor should actually tell you when you're ready. Yep. My gentleman did. My gentleman was a gentleman called Sultan. He was scared of dogs. I remember that. He was terrified. He had to come to my house and knock on my door once. I had a little cocker spaniel who went bonkers, and he was he he, he ran down the pathway saying, "I'll see you in the car," uh, and he was great. And I kept saying, "Can I can I apply for the test now?" He said, "No, I don't think you're ready." And then one day after a test, we pulled up. And he said, "Ian, I think you should apply for your test now." And he was right, mm. spot on. Yeah. What about this thing though? Do 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 you think we should have refresher tests every now and then? Well, I I believe um, that. We all take our tests, we're probably 17 to 21 usually. We pass our tests and then we don't do anything else. Um, A few of us do take the motorist um, advanced test, Mm. but many, many people don't. They're on the roads and we've got it now. People are driving, they don't know how to drive in these conditions. Oh, don't. I have seen some... I've said this yesterday. I was driving to Gloucester at the weekend, and uh, the the weather was awful, obviously. And I was doing... uh, I was on the M4. uh, I didn't really go above 60. 65, and some points I was doing 50, because the roads were so bad. People were buzzing past me 100 miles an hour, Shirley. Yeah, it's crazy. With with their roofs covered with snow. You should always scrape the snow off before you pull away. Yeah. I, I just think that if everybody was to take a refresher course every five years, not to fail them, but to actually highlight the bad errors or areas that they've fallen into. And also signs and things change every few years. Wherever you drive, there's different signs, different roundabouts. Even in your own environment, as we know, around Luton and Dunstable, so many, excuse me, so many roads are changing and people can't adapt. Yep. Shirley Jo, uh, you're absolutely right. I'm agreeing with that. Uh, we have an anonymous text. Good point about driving lessons starting earlier. One of the callers made that. I think uh, the US has them as part of school. Does anyone know if it makes Americans safer drivers? They do, don't they? I remember watching programmes like The Wonder Years and they would have driving lessons as part of their school at the age of 14. I think in some states in America, you can drive at 15. Is that right? I'm sure in California you're allowed to pass your driving test and go out on the road, because they always go and make out, didn't they, in Happy Days and on Beach Boys songs, but, like, at the age of 15, that is... I, we, we learned to drive too, too young. 17, OK, I was a young man, I was full of hormones and testosterone and all kinds of craziness running through my head. I was too young to drive, really. I mean, I, I passed my test and I'm a darn good driver. But the driving test, you shouldn't really be allowed to drive until you're about 21, I think. That makes more sense, doesn't it? Uh, are you brave enough to phone up and say, Ian, yeah... I took more than five tests, and I'm a darn good driver. 08459 455 555. Can we find somebody who's taken more than five driving tests to come on and defend their driving skills? I doubt it. Morning, dear listener. This is Ian Lee, BBC Three Counties Radio. It's just gone eight o'clock. Lots coming up in the next hour that I'm sure you'll want to have your sound. I'll give you the contact details in a few minutes. Let me just tell you what you're talking about. A BBC investigation has revealed concerns over how the Liverpool Care Pathway is being used in three counties' hospitals. I'll be speaking to the director of a hospice uh, hospice in Berkhamsted to see what she thinks about the findings. Should there be a limit 
on the number of driving tests that you should be able to do. Thousands of motorists in the three counties did 11 tests each. Some took 21. If you do more than five, you're not good enough to drive. That's it. Simple. You stop. You get a bus. Uh, And Prince Harry is on his way back to the UK from Afghanistan after finishing his 20-week tour of duty there. He admitted he uh, he had killed insurgents. Do you think he's a good role model? You can go on the Facebook page, as some of you are now, and have a little argument. Facebook.com forward slash BBC3CR. You can send us a text, 81333. Start your text 3CR. Or you can give us a call, 08459 455 555. BBC Three Counties Radio. Now, hospitals in the three counties are being given incentives to encourage them to put more patients on the Liverpool Care Pathway. You're put on the pathway when there's no more treatment available, and instead it focuses on palliative care. A BBC investigation has found that one local hospital trust was paid more than £100,000 for boosting the number of terminally ill patients on the scheme. Some patients and their relatives didn't know they'd been put on it. Well, that's what happened to Denise Charlesworth-Smith. Her father, Phil Charlesworth, died last year after being put on the pathway. We didn't really know that he was on the pathway um, until um, October this year when we backtracked to find out what um, was said in passing on the morning that he died uh, that he was on LCP. We thought it was a drug. So no one explained to you what LCP was? No, absolutely nothing at all. And if we had known about it, I wouldn't be talking to you today because obviously I would have known what LCP was all about. Mm. It was the fact that nobody told us anything about it. But many people support the scheme as a humane way way for people to end their lives. Well, the Hospice of St Francis in Berkhamsted has experts in the field who provide people to train local hospitals in the use of the LCP. The director, Dr Ros Taylor, is in the studio. Morning, Ros. Morning, Ian. Uh, What do you make of the criticism that's been levelled against the uh, LCP? Well, I'm concerned that it's going to backfire good care of the dying. I think some of the stories we've heard are absolutely shocking and they all boil down to poor communication between doctors, nurses and the families. So families haven't been informed that their loved one is in the last days of life and that the direction of care could or should change to focus on comfort rather than lots of tests and um, drugs that they don't need. And I think most of the cases we've seen are about poor communication and, a, and highlight a real need for more training. For those people who are perhaps a little bit afraid of what this is, yes. can you describe exactly what the Liverpool Care Absolutely. Pathway is and how it works? Yes. Um, the health service use many, uses many pathways and tools. Pathways are simply checklists and protocols to remind doctors and nurses to do the right thing. Mm. So the Liverpool Care Pathway... Big problem, because it's called the LCP and people don't know what it is. Mm. If it was just called, as we are doing now in our hospice, Pathway for the Last Days of Life, then it's much more explicit. But what it is, it's a series of reminders to suggest that doctors and nurses must remember to speak to patients, must remember to have analgesia and other medications available, um, need to explore what's important to the patient and family in the last days of life, um, what special wishes need to be observed. So it doesn't tell you to do anything, to stop anything, to start anything. It is just a reminder. But it's if, like all tools, 
if the training isn't in place, mm. it can be used in the wrong way. So it's, uh, basically, it's to make co- people comfortable in their last hours or their last days. Yes. And, and could that mean, uh, we've heard stories about having, you know, tubes taken out, yep. and just not, not carrying on treatment that could be intrusive and is not, not essential. Yes, but all of that needs discussion. So the family or the patient needs to know, we think mm. you are, that time is very short, that actually this drip may not be helping you or this antibiotic is causing more side effects not helping you um you definitely don't need to take your cholesterol lowering drugs if you're on your last days of life and it's as simple as that the Mm. conversations need to happen and usually families welcome that there's a change of direction Mm. to comfort why are uh families not being told that the the relatives are are going on this this pathway okay good question i think it's because these are really difficult conversations and hospitals are about curing and relieving and sending people home feeling better and perhaps care of the dying isn't focused on enough in the training of nurses and doctors in fact i know it isn't Mm. um and therefore these conversations are often avoided and then a family comes in and finds that everything's been stopped and no conversations have happened and that's where care starts to break down so we need to train more doctors and nurses in the skills of having difficult conversations Mm. and you learn it on the job a bit but you can also learn by mentoring and witnessing and some doctors uh, my father-in-law's a doctor he's a cardiologist and some doctors have the i was talking to a nurse about this the other day have the worst people skills yeah. Whereas, whereas nurses tend to be, and it's not always the case, I'm generalising slightly, but nurses tend to be a bit more caring and a bit more sensitive. The example I have is my wife is, is phobic of needles. She faints if she sees needles. And when we were having our children, it was a nightmare, but we got through it. And the nurses were always very sensitive. You take your time, time would you like a cup of tea? We'll get through this. And the doctor, when he found this out, picked up a big needle and went, so what's, what's worrying you about this? Why does this put you off? And, and it's a small example, but they can be... Um, quite scientific doctors, can't they? Is that part of the problem when it comes to people who are dying and their relatives? Um, I'm not going to generalise between nurses and doctors. I've seen great communicators on both sides. And I think there are naturally good communicators. But what we've learned, particularly from the advanced communication skills training that mm. is available, you can learn how to have some of these conversations. And I don't know. I think if you just sort of get in touch back with your humanity yeah and perhaps some of these junior doctors are just so busy yeah that they forget that they've got mums and brothers and sisters and Mm. how would they talk to them so it's getting back in touch with how you'd normally speak to people some of the stark facts around this story it does Mm. make it sound as though hospitals are being paid yeah. In, to encourage people to die. There's, yeah. there's an incentive. That, that, that doesn't sound right. Okay, no, they're not being paid to encourage people to die. There are lots of incentives that the NHS give for what they believe to be quality tools. Mm. And the Liverpool Care Pathway, if it's followed and people are comfortable and their symptoms are controlled and communication is good, that's a good thing. And hospitals are encouraged that if people are diagnosed to be dying and in the last days of life then a structured pathway should be used to make sure the right things are being done Mm. it's not paying people it's not paying hospitals to 
end more people's lives, which is how it's been sadly reported. Is part of the problem about the, going back to the communication with the families, that um, quite often if someone says, I've got some terrible news, we don't think mum's going to last more than a couple mm. of days. Yeah, I give you a job. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> but then, but then the, 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 the child might go, or the, the son or the daughter might go, well, hang on a second, we don't know that she's done. You, you could yep. be wrong. Yep. You know, no, you carry on the treatment. Yep. Is that part of the, Absolutely. the issue? Well, it's all about negotiation and dialogue. The doctor and nurse may think that time is very short. But they're not med- always right, aren't they're they? They're not always right, and medicine is very uncertain, mm. and therefore built into the pathway is absolutely regular review every few hours and definitely a big team review at three days if somebody is stabilised um, and is still eating a little and drinking a mm. little, then you need to review. Perhaps they're not dying. Perhaps we need to restart the antibiotics, etc. So it's all about review. Should the person who's dying always be told? Is there not an argument for sometimes there's no point in upsetting them, really? Um, yeah, everybody's an individual. Some people want to know everything. Yeah. Often, I mean, there's a big focus now also in medicine on something called advanced care planning. Mm. Finding out, are you the sort of person who wants to know everything? Yeah. Or shall I just speak to your wife? Uh, most people want to know, and we're always really surprised and refreshed by how much... How brave people are in yeah. facing the end of their life. Oh, I don't want to know. You don't want to know. I, I, I don't want to know. No, I don't want to know. And I'm, I'm happy to this. The, to me, the, the, the LCP, it sounds like, uh, you know, if it's done properly with, with the respect for the families, it yes. sounds like, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a great is the wrong word, but it, it sounds like an appropriate way to move things yeah. forward. Yeah. yeah. There are some people that, 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 that might say, but hang on, whoa, there's pressure in hospitals to free up beds. That, yes. You know, and and yes. there kind of is, isn't there? There's never really Absolutely. enough beds. Is, is, is that a concern? Uh, that's a huge concern. Over 50% of us die in hospital and it isn't a great place because mm. they're busy places and nurses and doctors often don't have enough time. It's difficult for families to stay. So there needs to be conversations earlier on about if time is short and if you are going to die or when you're going to die, where would you like to be? Now, mm. those choices can't always be met. But if you've had the conversation, you're much more likely to get home with the right support or to a hospice if there's a bed available um and there is a pressure on hospitals to do what they're best at which is getting you better Mm. perhaps not caring for you in your final days Uh, families when they find out that that a loved one is going to be put on this pathway is there a sense of relief for them, I'm sure everyone's different, of course, but is there a sense, really, how do they react? Well, a lot of people, especially if there's been a real battle to stay alive and lots of interventions and lots of hospital admissions, a lot of people are relieved mm. and say, good, actually, maybe it is time to go and we can focus just on being with our loved one rather than watching lots more interventions. Um, yeah, again, every family is individual. Some people want to cling on to the last bit of life and are happy for more interventions and... Um, more chemotherapy. I think if you have conversations and you get to know your patients and you can get to know people quite quickly, yeah. then you'll do the right thing. Okay. Listen, thank you very much for coming in. It's fascinating. Okay. Dr. Ros Taylor, Great. thank you very much indeed. Thank from you. the uh, Hospice of St. Francis in Berkhamsted. Right, yes. now listen, David. We, yes. we, we, we need to talk. The poison's working. What, what, uh, listen, how desperate <laughs> are you for cash? I can lend you some. Oh, what my. is it? Ah, uh, well, I've got this nice little poison that I use in his <laughs> soup. Managed poor, to get rid of him for another day. Poor Jonathan Vernon Smith. He's off. He's got the. He's got a stomach problem. He's got the again. Argentinian uh, whatever. Yes, but <laughs> so David, you're in. It's always a good yes. listen when you come, and it's nice to see you.
you. What, what have you got on the show this yeah, morning? Yeah, well, we do wish Jonathan better. He's, he really hasn't got over this bug. So uh, I'm in just for this morning, hopefully. Does Prince Harry make you proud of our royal family? Captain Wales is all over the news this morning in an interview marking the end of his tour in Afghanistan. Prince Captain Har- Wales sounds like a rubbish superhero. Like Captain America, Captain, Captain Wales. Wales. <laughs> um, have you seen the clip of when he's given the interview then he runs off halfway through because he's called to fly the helicopter? No, I've not seen oh, that. That's no. fantastic. Grabs his gun and runs. I've seen the photos of him playing PlayStation. Is he not getting confused about the insurgents <laughs> he's killed? He's playing Call of Duty. Yeah, actually, there's a bit where he's uh, showing off the joystick in the plane that they used to uh, fire the missiles, and uh, he says, "Look, uh, any young men who've played PlayStation will recognise this." Uh, anyway, do, are you proud of him? Sometimes he says you have to take a life to save a life. It's not uh, long ago that he was in Las Vegas displaying the crown jewels, of course. And now here he is out in Afghanistan. He is a, a young man with a life of extraordinary privilege. But does he make you proud of our royal family, the work that he's been doing in Afghanistan? After nine o'clock this morning. Lovely, David. Look forward to hearing Thank from you. you. Thank you very much indeed. Across beds, hearts and bucks, this is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio. Now, this is fascinating. I love this story. BBC Three Counties Radio has discovered that nearly two and a half thousand people took more than 11 times to pass their driving tests here in the last five years. Our exclusive figures also reveal that at least 35 of them took more than 21 attempts. So, are these people idiots, or are driving tests just too hard these days? Well, we sent our reporter, Victoria Cook, to the David Bailey Driving School in High Wycombe to retake her test. She passed first time 12 years ago. Can she do it again? Victoria, we're going to go for a drive for about 40 minutes, approximately. In that 40 minutes, we are going to do one manoeuvre and one independent drive. Okay. I will be pulling you up on the left several times and I will explain what I want after that. Okay. Okay. At all times during the test, unless I tell you differently, follow the road ahead. So, i.e. at a roundabout, follow the road ahead. Nothing said, straight ahead. Nothing said, straight ahead. <laughs> I remember that one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, So good. when you're ready and it's safe to do so, can you pull away, go to the end of the road and turn right. You've missed one opportunity so far, that was all. Oh, really? Yeah, you're just protruding onto the, um, yeah, the batter smidge. Now I'm protruding even more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was horrible. And that's you with all that experience. I know. That's horrible. That, that was horrible. Like I just felt like I couldn't get out of the roundabout at all. But at the same time, you feel pressured to do it by the yeah. people behind you moving. Isn't that strange? That little roll back there. Did I roll back? I've done it three times now. Oh my goodness! Yeah. So what you're doing? You're releasing, you're releasing the foot brake, releasing the handbrake, yeah, and rolling back, or releasing your foot brake before you've got biting point. Uh, Hence, you only roll back probably about I don't know four or five inches. I didn't but, even notice it at all. But if the car behind you is coming up too close, you're just going to roll back into it. Test over now, Victoria. Right. Unfortunately, you've not passed. Oh, no. Uh, you had a couple of situations there. Uh, you've got two serious faults with one, two, three, three minors. So you've got three minor faults, but two serious faults. And what were they? The serious fault was when you encroached on the roundabout to turn right. Obviously, that put us in danger when you'd crossed over the give-way line oh, at yeah. that roundabout. The second series was on your turn in the road. If you remember, when we were on the reverse leg of your turn in the road, there was three children running along. Yeah. You should be stationary until they're safely passed. So that would have been a, 
a fail, but with only three minors, but obviously it's t- too serious. Yeah. So other than us nearly crashing at roundabout and nearly uh, squashing some children, it was all right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She failed. Victoria failed, and uh, she has been uh, fired from the BBC as a direct result. Uh, Very patient David Bailey there, guiding her through that. Well, we're asking you this morning, should there be a limit to how many driving tests you take? Deputy Chief Driving Examiner Sandra Dodson is uh, from the Driving Standards Agency. Morning, Sandra. Good morning, Ian. I genuinely think five times... If you take any more tests than that, you shouldn't be allowed to drive. Some people just aren't cut out for driving, Sandra. Oh, you're a meanie, Ian. You're I a am. Meanie. I just want safety on the roads. Hey, is that all? We all want safety on the roads, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. You know, your figures you said earlier are, 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 are sort of worrying. I mean, they, they, they definitely are. But remember, there's 1.6 million people take their practical driving test in Great Britain. 750,000 approximately pass first time. But there always will be, sadly, and for very many reasons, those that find it difficult to actually pass their test. It can be, more often than not, that they've not been trained adequately and they're coming in a little bit too early. There are so many... When I was learning 22 years ago, there was one big company that gave driving tests, uh, driving lessons and a couple of small independents, and that was it. Now there are so many different companies and one-man organisations. How rigorous is the testing for the driving instructors? Oh, we're very rigorous. In fact, they have to go through competencies with us that uh, some might say are are, are really difficult and have become more difficult as the years go on, but it's a profession now. I think when you quote the old uh, days, it was more or less one man and his dog, Mm. but it's not that now. They have to qualify with DSA. They're stringently uh, quality assured through Driving Standards Agency um, throughout their career. And, you know... um, it, it's never been better, and it's actually we're actually looking at ways that we can actually even make make it even more so for trainers, the people that train the trainers also, uh, to be much more stringently looked upon. I, I did my test twenty two years ago. I, I'm imagining it's changed a lot. I know there's a written part of the test now, and I'm so glad I didn't have that. I just had a, the fella showing me a couple of signs, and I got, I got it right. What, what what has changed in the last twenty years in, in driving tests? Well, you're right. I mean, obviously we've got the theory test, which is a, gives a much more indicative view. Of, of, of how you should be you know, appreciating the, the road rules and we've got the hazard perception test and the hazard perception of course is incredibly important I mean it, it's one thing to actually control a car but the, the real art of driving is seeing what's going on and understanding what's going on around you in 2010 we brought in the independent driving part and that's been applauded by, by candidates and instructors alike and that just allows 10 minutes or so where we actually stop, instru- uh, stop giving instructions or directions um, and we say, you know, follow the road signs to Bedford or wherever. Mm. Uh, there's a, there are two different arguments about what age we learn to drive. Some people say we should learn uh, earlier, like they do in America. You can start having driving lessons at sort of 14, 15. And some people think, well, actually, maybe we're too young and we should wait until we're 20, 21. What, what, what's your view on that? It's, it's, a diffi- it's difficult to have a view. You can, there's two elements to, to, to driving. There is, like I said before, there's the control and then there's the sort of cognitive approach, the, the attitude and your behaviour on the road and your awareness factor on the road. I think we've got it pitched about right. I mean, statistically, um, we're still the, well, you know, the, one of the safest... Uh, second safest country in the whole of the world. So, I mean, I think we've got it pretty... Well, well, hang on, who's the, who's the first safest? I think Sweden, Pippa's usually. It would be, yeah, they do, don't they? Yeah. It would be Sweden. 
Uh, Sandra, £75 it can cost to, to, to take a test. Some of these people that we're talking about here are spending up to £1,500 to pass. Is it too expensive? It, it would be if you're taking that many, obviously. I mean, the art, the art of this is to prepare well and be, be ready for your test. Don't come in too early. Don't try and wing it. It's not a wing it situation. As you said, <laughs> safety's, safety's <laughs> the important do thing. Do people really it? wing it? So they, well, so they have a couple of lessons go, I can do this, it'll be easy. It, you know, people's situations and social situations differ enormously, and sometimes people haven't got uh, professional tuition. Sometimes, to be honest, they haven't got the wherewithal to afford it. And it may be that they see taking the test time after time and time after time as a sort of almost a lottery, if you like, or a... I don't know. It's not the yeah. way to approach it, that's for sure. And, and would, would you be right in, in, in... Would I be right in saying this, Sandra? Don't have driving lessons with mum or dad. It just... It, it will only enter arguments and slamming of doors afterwards. <laughs> I remember my sister learning with my dad, and I saw what happened, and they had such big arguments about it that I just... I vowed I was never going to do it. I was going to get proper lessons from an instructor. Well, you know, you, you've hit the nail on the head. Proper lessons for an instructor. However, we would recommend that if anybody has the facility to take private practice with, say, a mum and dad or a responsible adult, that practice on the road is valuable. So wait till you've had your lessons, wait till you're safe, and then go out with mum and dad if you can. Sandra, thank you very much indeed. Sandra Dodson from uh, the Driving Standards Agency. I remember my sister coming home in tears once after a driving lesson with my dad, in tears, and she ran upstairs sobbing, and my dad came in and slammed the door, and he was effing and jeffing, and I said, what, what, what happened? Oh, there, Malcolm, what went wrong? Oh, she saw a flipping dog getting run over and she started crying like a flipping baby she, he didn't say flipping he was a little bit stronger than that and they 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 never had a driving lesson together since chris is in south mims morning chris hello mate what, what, right. what can i do for you um well i've been listening to you this morning and uh, you've been going on about how good a driver you are i'm excellent yeah oh, you're excellent are you yeah i am yeah. Well, let, 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 let me ask you a few questions Please now, when, do. You're dri- when you're driving along do you adjust your car radio put a cd in no I bet you do. No, I don't. I, 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 no, I don't. Got, got you there. Yeah. I choose my uh, entertainment before I leave. Okay, then. Do you talk to your passengers? I'll, uh, take it you've got, I'll take it you've got kids and you tell them off when they start mucking about in the back of the car. They don't muck about in the back of the car. They've been brought up oh, well. Oh, come on. They've been brought up well, <laughs> Chris. Come they on, don't man. muck about. Get out of here. <laughs> you're, you're as good as what everybody else is. You lack concentration on the road. I, I beg yeah, your pardon. Yeah, oh, you lack concentration on the road like don't, the rest of us. You go ju- down the road and you start criticising other people for their driving. Don't, don't judge me by your low standards, oh, Chris, mate. in South Mims. Listen, mate, I've been driving lorries for 40-odd years and I've seen oh, it all, including you, people like you. Yeah, you're, you, you lorry drivers, Chris, you lot are the worst. Yeah, yeah, you, Why well, are you trying to have little races? Driver. Everybody everybody is the same. They've all got Why? bad habits, whether you like it or not, me Why? included. Why? What, what are your bad habits, Chris? I cross my hands when I, when, I, uh, when I turn corners on the steering wheel. I use one hand because I've got powered steering. That's I, look at, I look in my mirrors for a start, too much. Well, what, what, that, uh, what, bad habit. what are you looking at in the mirrors? Yourself? No, for idiots like you coming up behind me and trying yeah. to cut in front of me. Chris, whereabouts, whereabouts are you driving today? I'm going into London today, okay, I'm Sandra London. I'm going I'm to go north in that case. Chris, thank you very much. You're a good sport. Chris in South Mims. How, how cheeky of him. What a naughty man. No, I, I choose my entertainment before I set off. Put the iPod on shuffle, generally, and see what pops up, or select an album. Uh, and if the kids are being really naughty, I'll pull over. And give them what for. Don't hit them, that'll be, that'll be inappropriate. Thank you, Chris. Finally, tennis and Maria Sharapova's through to the semi-finals of the Australian Open in Melbourne. The world number two beat f- fellow Russian Ekaterina Makarov 6-2-6-2, and now plays China's 
Lina, who was also a straight sets winner over Poland's Agnieszka Rad- Rad- Radwanska. And that's your latest news and sport. <laughs> Stop it. What? News and sport. More from me at nine. Breathing down my neck. I thought, listen, you can't, that is not harassment. You can't, if that's the, what you're accusing me of, you'd be very careful, young lady. <laughs> I'll show you harassment. No, I won't. That's, oh, for goodness Tell sake. it to the judge. Yeah. On FM, AM, and online, BBC Three Counties Radio. Just to clarify, I won't be showing anybody harassment. That's not, don't. Oh, no. Prince Harry is on his way back to the UK from Afghanistan after finishing his 20-week tour of duty there as a gunner and co-pilot of an Apache helicopter. He's admitted he killed insurgents. Do you think he's a good role model? And residents in Luton want an open space near the M1 to be designated as a village green. The councils want to build houses, and the residents are furious. Well, obscure Kinks album correspondent Justin Dealey has spent the morning with them. We'll hear what they've been saying in about 20 minutes. Across beds, hearts and bucks, this is Ian Lee on BBC Three Counties Radio. Oh, Phil is an interesting text. I remember seeing this on the TV, Phil, and was disappointed I never got to experience it. Um, at school, in the, they're talking about driving lessons and, and, and driving education. At school in the 70s, we did traffic education, which involved driving an old Ford Escort or a Bond bug or a motorcycle around the playground. This was Vine School in Basingstoke. Yeah, I remember seeing that on TV and thinking, oh, I'll have a bit of that. And then we never got that. We never had any of that. Uh, Jane's in Aylesbury. Good morning, Jane. Hello. Jane, what, 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 how many te- driving tests did it take? Two. Well, well, good. You you, can, you are allowed to drive on these on these roads then. <laughs> yeah. Do you agree with me? More than five tests, you shouldn't be allowed to drive. Well, let's put it this way: if if you can't pick it up after five five tests, then there's something in your brain that's not clinically may, able to keep keep track of what you're supposed to do. Exactly, because some people just aren't. They're just not predisposed to learning how to drive. It's not yeah. for everyone. It's not. It's not a judgment. Don't be ashamed of it. It's no, just. No, I've got, I've got a couple of aunts that have never have tried to learn to drive, and they've they've given up um, because they said, "I just can't can't concentrate long enough to do the stuff that you're supposed to do on your test." Were you nervous when you did your test? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But if you can't, if you can't cope, did you dress up? We, we talked about this um, earlier on. Did you dress up provocatively, Jane, to maybe influence the driving in, the, the, the examiner? No, you didn't do that. No. Okay. Well, I guess we ran the other way. Oh, well, <laughs> steady on! Don't be so harsh on yourself. I'm sure you're a fine-looking woman. Well, Jane, stay there because Steve, you think drivers should be allowed to take as many tests as they want? Yeah, of course they should. Why? Well, because the thing is that there are two ways of looking at this. You talked about the Americans. Okay, and they can start to learn at 14. Let's use the example that the Americans, 97%, I believe, of their cars are automatics. So that actually takes the difficulty of hand-eye coordination out of actually changing gear. Okay, so that's that's the biggest part of the problem. And a lot of cars over here are starting to become automatic. So you've got people who are taking tests just for an automatic vehicle. Uh, You know, that will help the situation. Um, and, you know, my dad, believe it or not, passed his test after I passed mine because wow. he could not handle the gears. Right. So, but so then he did it in automatic. So he did it in automatic. Well, listen, listen. Uh, driven ever yeah, since. The, the only problem with that is if you learn in an automatic, if you have to drive a manual car for whatever reason, you find it really difficult because my boyfriend 
has got an automatic, he had to drive mine, and mine's a manual. Well, he, he and he was crashing anyway. the gears. Got yeah. an automatic license. You're not allowed to. If, you, if you've passed in an automatic, you can only drive automatics, I think, yeah. Jane. Yeah, he had to do it in an emergency, though. Whoa, whoa, what, <laughs> what emergency? Well, <laughs> I've had stomach surgery. Oh, yeah. And, um... He had to take over because I couldn't do any more because I was in too much pain. So what? What you were driving to the hospital? No, no, no. What, so I, it, I, th- it, this is a, this is afterwards. All right. So what? He was just he was just going to Tesco's and stuff here. No. no. <laughs> what was he doing, Jane? He was breaking the law because of your stomach surgery. Where was he driving? From um, Ellsby to Wickham. How how often? Oh, only once. What? Why? What's only the once okay. because I, I said that I can't. Okay. This driving is too much. Steve, listen to this. Someone as, as Earthquake 3 has uh, tweeted, OK, if you, if you fail one driving test, you could be nervous. Two, bad luck. But three fails, then it's taxis and buses for five years, then you try again. No, no, no. <laughs> what is the matter with people? Has anyone got any tolerance? I mean, the fact is that these statistics are so tiny, yeah. the amount of people that are failing that amount of times... Does it really matter? It doesn't. You see, the, what needs to happen okay, is quite simple. It's to get all these, these idiot lorry drivers off the oh, road oh, hey. to decide to go past each other on a dual carriageway one mile an hour faster than the one on the inside lane so that you can just get ahead of him. If we need to stop the idiot lorry drivers. I'm not saying it's all of them, because it isn't, who are on a mobile phone... Yep. while driving. You know, but they should be the kicked up the butt anyway. To be the expert. Sorry, Jane, they should be what? They should be kicked up the butt anyway. I agree with you. Yeah, and the other thing is, and I'm... Jane, I'm your boyfriend's driven illegally. I'll kick him up the butt. See, I'm <laughs> fighting for this, OK, yep. to get legislation that youngsters under the age of 21 who yep. pass their test can drive nothing bigger than a one-litre vehicle. Exactly, I totally agree. I'm with you on that. These zooped-up Golf GTI rubbish that is probably not really that roadworthy. They should not be allowed on the road anything over one litre until they're 21, until they've proven that they can drive without having accidents in super-fast cars. Steve? Yes? How many driving tests did you take? One. Good for you. You see, you're a good driver. You, you'd be allowed... Oh, I, I am a safe driver. Yeah. I drive Me a too. big old Volvo XC60, now a four-wheel drive, yeah. because I'm safe. My two sons, who've passed their test, both drive one-litre vehicles because they feel safe. OK, they're brand new, but they've got all the safety features. And believe it or not, their insurance came down from driving my wife's old Corsa. Yeah. My son had a 1.2-litre Corsa. It dropped by £300 almost wow. overnight by him getting a brand-new car and because it's got all the safety features. And that's what legislation should be in these these. MPs need to get off their ass and Mr. Salou, sorry Steven. for the language. Stephen! Mr. Salou, if you're listening, get this o- over the line. Okay, Stephen, there's, there's a category C. Uh, I have to apologise, as always. We, I know you don't mind at all, dear listener, but I have to, just in case. Category C there, Stephen. Naughty, naughty. Slap wrists. Uh, and Jane, you as well. Go and wash, both wash your mouth out with soap, you potty mouth people. Jane in Ellsbury and Stephen Heath and Rich. Thank you very much indeed. Now, moving on, with local councils becoming ever more desperate for land uh, to use for housing, some are resorting to building on open spaces. Residents in Luton are currently trying to register some land by the M1 as a village green, which would give it more protection. A hearing with a government inspector is underway. underway. Well, reporter Justin Dealey has spent the morning with the residents. Justin, I think we can hear you now. Uh, you can indeed, Lovely. and uh, the residents earlier in the first hour were absolutely livid about this, and, and the reason they're so angry about this is 
in is it's Butley Road in Luton. Now, uh, this land we're talking about, it used to belong to the building firm Wimpy. That was back in the 1960s. Well, they couldn't build on that land because it was deemed to be too close to the M1. So what they did, they then gave that land to the local council in Luton on one condition that they upheld it as an open space. Well, this planning permission has, has gone in and the council are looking to build houses there. So uh, the people there who live in that local area don't want that at all. They enjoy having that open space. They would do everything they can to stop this going ahead. I've been with them all morning. I've been talking to uh, Martin Stiff. Martin Stiff lives just behind this open space and he says by going for village green status, they're hoping this will give them some form of protection. Absolutely. It should give us um, a degree of protection to um, maintain the space as a public open space to prevent future developments uh, for um, ourselves, our local community and uh, other generations to come. And what is your message to Lewis and Borough Council this morning? Because you feel totally let down by them, don't you? Absolutely. Um, the, 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 the space was given by uh, Wimpies in the late 60s for um, open space as a buffer zone between the motorway and the, the properties. Um, and uh, they've now uh, receded on that and now given it to a developer now to build 54 properties. I was going to speak to Karen as well here. Karen, you've lived here since 1988. You've got three young children. I'm sure many happy memories of them playing in that field there. Oh, yeah, yeah. They've, they have grown up now, but, yeah, it's brilliant over there. And just try and describe, if you can, your frustration. You're talking to me this morning opposite this open space. In a year's time, potentially, there could be new homes there. Just try and describe your frustration. I think it's... it's I can't. I can't describe it. It's, it's disgusting. You're going to put houses on there, there'll be less space for anybody. You need open space for your mental and physical well-being. And they're just taking it away. Just, just taking it... I can't believe that they can, they can be allowed to do this. And you'll fight, do everything you can to stop this from going ahead. Too right. You're not going to just sit there and let it happen? No. No, oh. I'll be on their tree, hugging a tree, if you like, if that's mm. what you want to call it. Yeah. But I'm not going to let them build yeah. on that land. You're that passionate about it. What's your name, young man? Matthew. How old are you, Matthew? Nine. Uh, just describe to us what it's like to play there, behind your house, in those open fields. It is very fun, playing with my friends and family, like playing football and all that, and playing on my bike. And how would it make you feel if you woke up one morning and it wasn't there and you saw lots of homes instead? I'd feel very depressed and I just wouldn't go out. I've said a few there finally of Martin, who's nine years old. It's all very well hearing from, from the adults there. They're angry about this, but, but Martin, who's nine years old, says that he feels depressed. And yes, you could say Luton needs more housing. We all know that. We're talking about 54 properties. But, but these people are saying, look, we feel the council has lied to us. This agreement was in place back in the 1960s from Wimpy, saying, there you go, council. You can have that land, but you can't build on it. They feel they've gone back on that, and they feel very let down by the local council. Uh, Justin, I don't, I'm, I'm trying to picture this piece of land. I don't know exactly where it is. Can you describe it? Does, it doesn't look like a traditional village green, does it? No, absolutely not. But, of course, they're going for that because they, they feel that will offer them more protection. It's basically, to try and sum this up for you, it, it's a normal row of houses, and behind those homes, you've got an area of grass, probably the size of about three football pitches, I would right. say. So, so those people can walk out of their back gardens and they can go into that field. So uh, a lot of the parents in particular, 
particular there, you heard from one who had three children, had a great childhood there, because they can look out of their homes and see their children playing in those open fields. They, they feel it's safe, they feel it's good for their children as well. That, in the near future, could be taken away from them, and they just can't deal with that. They would do everything they can, and you've heard there from Karen saying she'll jump on a tree. Earlier people were saying that they'll be in front of bulldozers. These people will not let this rest. They'll do everything they can to stop this from going ahead. Right, Justin, you live in one of those houses, okay? We don't, but let's imagine you do, and I live in one of those houses. I, if, I, if I looked out the back, I would say, hey, Justin, do you fancy going to play on the common? Yeah. A friend of mine, Steve, would say, hey, Justin, Ian, do you fancy going out on the wreck? Yeah. What would you call that bit of land? Um, I'd probably call it a common, actually. You yeah, go, for go, the common. go, go yeah. and play on the common. But, you know, it's, yeah. it's, 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 that could be gone. That could be gone for yeah. those people. And property prices as well could go down because of it. So, all in all, they are absolutely furious this morning. <laughs> Producer Laura would call it the field. I think that's because she's dead <laughs> common. Justin, common. thank you very much for that. Yes, I'll call it. My mate Steve would say the wreck. You want to go and play on the wreck? Uh, yeah, yes, it's interesting, isn't it, what you call these these little bits of land that you go and play on as a kid. Morning! Uh, another 12 minutes of the show, and then uh, David Prever is filling in for Jonathan Vernon-Smith, who's got that nasty tummy bug again. I won't go into details, but it's not pleasant back at, uh, back at uh, Vernon-Smith Towers. Now, the story on the front page of most of your papers this morning is that Prince Harry is back on his way, uh, his way back to the UK from Afghanistan after finishing his 20-week tour of, t- uh, tour of duty there as a gunner and co-pilot of an Apache helicopter. The Prince gave media interviews whilst at Camp Bastion, which can only be broadcast now. During an interview, Harry admitted that he had killed insurgents. Take a life to save a life. That's what we sort of revolve around, I suppose. If there's people trying to do bad stuff to our guys, then... You know, we'll, we'll, we'll take them out of the game, I suppose. It's not the reason I decided to do this, to do this job. The reason I did this job was to get out back out here and, 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 carry, on, and carry on with a job. We can talk now to uh, uh, Robert Johnson, who's an award-winning royal journalist and author of the book Harry's War. Morning, Robert. Good morning. Well, what's your take on this interview? What did you make of it? Well, I think it was a very candid interview. I think he um, spoke about a whole wide range of issues. He, did, he sounded to me that he didn't particularly want to be given the interview and in some respects I, I feel that he, he didn't need to give so much away I think talking about killing the Taliban you know we all know why he was there we all know what the Apache helicopter does I think to start saying you've done it will, will, will leave you open to being a terrorist target even more than perhaps you already are so I don't necessarily think that was the wisest thing but I found it quite interesting and, and revealing in, in um, what he had to say about his brother, about um, the media and other areas. If he didn't want to do it, why would he have done it? Would it have been pressure from uh, from the military, from his family? Why, why would he have done an interview like that? Well, I think there would have been a deal of sort because obviously um, the media have not been in, uh, giving him any exposure whilst he's been out there, right. which is fair enough. So there would have been some sort of pressure from the palace but i do believe that he did do it very well but i think that the way the media interview was cut it sounded like he was perpetually moaning about his privacy and and uh, issues like that which i don't necessarily think is the wisest thing to do particularly of course the, the monarchy after all the royal family is an unelected institution that relies upon popular support and the media to to keep in its position so it may be just the way that the interview was cut but it did come across that he was whinging rather a lot actually what has he done for the image of the royal family do you think well i think he's a very positive uh, role model for the royal family because he's somebody that gets on and does a job that he's paid to do and i think that that's important that if he's a serviceman in the military that he's actually seen to be doing it he's quite a, a poster boy for the military too because i mean he's very very popular amongst his peers and uh, i think he, he deserves their respect for that but 
I think on the other side, it must be difficult for him to compartmentalise his life the way he, he has to. One minute it's a soldier, the next minute it's a prince. But I suppose the, the most important thing for him to remember is when he comes back, he can do an awful lot of good in his position as a prince for those injured servicemen and women that have served on the front line like himself. Harry said that life in the army was, quote, as normal as it's going to get, unquote. Do you, do you think that's the real reason he's out there, to try and get some sort of normality in, in what must be a, a pretty crazy life, I guess? Well, I wouldn't think it's particularly normal for the rest of us. I mean, service, service and if in Afghanistan is a, is a very testing experience, I think, for the best of us. And, uh, you know, he's done a great job to be out there. But normal, he's always craved that degree of... Um, Normal, normality ever since he was a little boy but he's always wanted to be a soldier too so it's probably as normal as he's going to get um, being a prince I think in the spotlight all the time is difficult and he obviously from the words that he expressed finds it difficult to be in that public spotlight I think everyone would um, and he quite likes just sharing everyday life with, with guys um, in, in the military and I think he clearly enjoys it is, is it appropriate for him to be in the army? There, there is always an argument, isn't there, that, that by being there, he's putting um, his life and the lives of those around him in danger because, wow, what a, what a you know, a hit for the Taliban that would be if they got him. Well, of course, he would be a, a huge target for them, but the reality is the military and the royal family are intrinsically linked and, and always have been, really. I mean, King George VI, when he was Duke of York, served at the Battle of Jutland. The Duke of Edinburgh was mentioned in dispatches during World War Two and... Um, served with distinction as did prince andrew so i think you've got to remember that it's it's a it's it's part and parcel of being a member of the royal family and they always have done and um i, I don't really think there's a a problem with him serving i think the only problem would be is if he had all that expensive training and did not mm. commit himself to frontline duty and what's next for him robert what what, what happens now well clearly i think his time in afghanistan is done i don't believe that he will return and i'm sure that prince charles among many will breathe a sigh of relief about that i think he will throw himself into royal duties well on his charity work he will continue to serve in the military i think he's got a plan to go on an expedition with um injured service personnel to the south pole which i think will be uh, a money-raising event which will be uh, well publicized but i think really he's got to probably focus on being a prince and that will not necessarily sit that comfortably with him long term Robert, thank you very much indeed. Robert Jobson, um, author of the book Harry's War. Well, from nine o'clock this morning, David Prever is in from Jonathan Vernon-Smith, and he's asking, does Prince Harry make you proud of our royal family? You can start calling now if you want. 08459 455 555. Bernie in Bedfordshire. Good morning, Bernie. Good morning. Are you a fan of Prince Harry? I think he is gorgeous. Oh, come on. Put his feet under my bed any night. Oh, for goodness sakes, Bernie. <laughs> a bit of respect. Why? He's lovely. What's, what's, he, what's so lovely he, about him, Bernie? He is just a normal person. Um, uh, he might have royal status, but he's just normal. In what way is he normal? He goes out and gets drunk like everybody like, else. Like you? Uh, no, unfortunately, no. I don't drink. I'm too old. No, no. <laughs> But still, but I bet no, you... No, he's just a normal, fun-loving person. Yeah, with, with millions of pounds. <laughs> yeah, but money isn't everything, is it? No. I'm just a poor little old pensioner. <laughs> Did you get excited, Bernie, when you saw the pictures of him naked? Uh, I haven't seen them. Oh. Am I you, sad? You saw everything, Bernie. You saw, yeah. you saw Prince Harry and the little Prince Harry. Uh, what paper was it? It was... <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Oh, Bernie. I'll try and get a copy. Bernie, let's move on to something a little bit cleaner. I don't yeah. want to sour the tone before David Priever takes over. He'll oh, do that no, himself. No, no. That's a joke. Can, yeah. That's a joke. <laughs> uh, so, uh, d- driving. Uh, can you drive, Bernie? Yeah. How many I tests did you take? Three, I have... I took... Well, three tests. Well, three tests. Yes. Two were cancelled because of adverse weather. Right, OK. And I passed on my third. Well, that's fair enough. You're, in my utopia, is, you can so, drive. I ha- No, I don't drive now. Oh. I am disabled, and I feel after what I had, yeah. my reactions aren't fast enough, what, so what, I c- don't drive. What, what, can I ask what you had, what, what the problem yeah, was? I had a massive brain hemorrhage right. followed by a stroke. And do you, feel, uh, do, do you feel that there's kind of a little delay in what you think and what your body does? Yes. Yeah, interesting. And that is why I gave it up. Good for you. Well done. Yes, you probably I made a sensible decision. <laughs> other people's lives are as precious as my life, so... I don't want to jeopardise it. But as for that Stephen... Yes, he called in earlier, yes. To get lorry drivers off the road, does the man stop and think that without lorry drivers... I've got two sons that are lorry drivers. Without lorry drivers, we won't get food, we won't get heating, we won't get anything. Everything comes by lorries. And I don't think he was saying get rid of lorry drivers. I think he was just saying that a no, lot of them... take them off the road. Well, a lot of them are rubbish, though, aren't they, Bernie? Uh, a lot of them. They, they, yeah. they try and race each other and, oh, they're awful. On their mobile phones? No, naughty. No, 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 no. Naughty. No, it is illegal for them, the same as it is for us, to use a mobile phone. If they're caught... Naughty. ...using a mo- mobile phone by their company, they get the sack. Good. And that's the um, way it should be, also, isn't it? Yes. Also, Ian, yeah. most of these lorry drivers that are racing... Yeah. I mean, one nearly ran my youngest son off the road. He was asleep at the wheel. Your son he, was asleep at the wheel? No, no. no the, the lorry sorry, driver? Yeah, the okay. foreign lorry driver. Oh. My son nearly got killed through him yeah. because he ran him into the side of the motorway. No, that's the, well, that's no, but Bernie, that's no good at all. I'm, I'm finishing just because I want to squeeze April in Luton. In morning, April... Good morning. We've got about 50 seconds. What can I do for you? Uh, not often I agree with you, but yes, in this case I would. <laughs> if you take more than five times to pass your test, then you shouldn't be but on the road. not often you agree with me? I speak common sense every single day on this station. That is a matter of conjecture. <laughs> but you, OK, we agree on this one. This is nice. We're hands across the water. Five, more than five tests, you shouldn't be allowed on yeah. the road. Yeah, I passed my car test first time. My driving uh, examiner on the day said, what does 13 make? And I said, unlucky for some. And he said, what does practice make? And I said, perfect. And he said, well, you've got 13 minors, but you've passed, so you need more practice. Whoa, hang on a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa, whoa. <laughs> you've got 13 minors and you, they, he still yeah. let you pass? Yeah, because you're allowed 15. Oh, I, I wouldn't have let you pass, April. I'd have made uh, you t- t- it took me four times to pass my motorbike uh, test, oh. and I think everybody should do a motorbike yeah, test. Yeah, uh, you're right, and I think you should only be allowed to take your motorbike test three times. Yeah. Thanks very much, April. Yeah, <laughs> 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 thank you very much. I agree with you. I never agree with you. Unbelievable. Thank you, everyone who called in and took part. Back tomorrow at six o'clock. Stay tuned, David Priva filling in for JBS. Ta-ta. Getting beds, hearts and bugs talking. This is BBC Three Counties Radio. Thank you, Ian and the team. Another great show this morning.